This podcast contains strong language, details of drug use, violence, recounting of traumatic events and themes which listeners may find upsetting. I'm ready, I'm good. How good are you? (sighs) Really good, like I'm ready and I'm ready to go. Okay, let's roll it then. Okay. Champion. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Recovery Hub podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin, from Eternal Media. And for the benefit of the tape, I've got our very own Marcus co-hosting with me today. Hi, everyone. (laughs) And today we've got the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Wolf Livingston. Thank you so much for being here with us today. You're really welcome. We're less the doctor and more the wolf, please. (laughs) How often do you get, oh, Dr. Livingston, I presume... A lot. A lot, okay. I'll definitely not do that in today then, Wolf. (laughs) So, Wolf, how do you and Marcus know each other? Like, how did you and Marcus meet? Okay, so my memory of that is on a mountain, yes? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I um, got involved, which is quite a long story, with one of the the lads that's a big part of our recovery community here in Wrexham, a guy called Tony Ormond, yeah? I don't know if you know Tony, you met Tony? Yeah, I interviewed Tony. Okay, yeah. so um, I got involved with Tony very early on, um, oh, we're talking many, many years ago, and, and the short version of that for the moment is that Tony wanted to um, get some folk to do a big walk in the mountains for um, charity, and then the legacy of that piece of work I did with um, uh, Tony was that we just set up this what we called a mountaineering recovery group um, otherwise known as DARE which stands for Drug and Alcohol Recovery Expeditions yes oh, that's and cool, Marcus that. joined us on one of those particular expeditions yes nice. yeah I think I don't think you thought my cold turkey at the time was rough enough <laughs> so this is 2005 I think it was a day into a rehab in Colwyn Bay and so so poorly and Wolf dragged me out on the side of a mountain yeah, yeah. That's cool. And I've dragged a lot of people out on the mountain, including Marcus. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't, and Marcus and I have paths have crossed ever since, on and off. And again, much more recently, I think, um, partly because I'm doing more and more work with Penryn in Bangor and so is Marcus. And so our paths have crossed a lot more and more recently. Yeah. So tell me a bit about yourself, like a bit of background. Which bit of background do you want to know? So I've been here living in North Wales almost all of my adult life. So I moved here when I was 19. I moved to Bangor, which is where I live, although we're in Wrexham now. Um, I live just outside Bangor and I've always lived just outside Bangor. And I moved there as I was 19 and I've been there ever since. Before then, I had a kind of 12-month episode of a little bit of wandering in life um, and then spent my childhood life being brought up in and around the area of Reading. I was actually born in Windsor, but not the big building that you might think's in Windsor, but yeah. the hospital <laughs> that's in Windsor, yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, so and I've been living in North Wales ever since, um, and I've been on two or three different journeys in my time in North Wales. Um, been a chef. I'm a social worker, but I've done social work practice. I've worked in a university. Got a family. Got three grown-up kids. Go running up mountains. What? What do you want to know? So well. So the first time I actually got to meet you was last week. You did, yeah. I come to see your lecture, which I thought was really interesting because. It wasn't just about like 
the alcohol policy in Wales. It was about like you give me a bit of background on like your journey, what brought you to that, and like I just think it's it's really interesting, like the drugs and alcohol. Yeah, so I suppose last week you you came to me give a, a a public lecture on on, on alcohol policy, yeah. as you rightly say. But in that, I really told a story of alcohol and society and alcohol, totally. and I guess inside that, I told my own story of alcohol. Yeah. Um, so I've done drugs, but alcohol has been my drug. It's my favourite drug. It remains my favourite drug, um, and it's been in my life all my life from the day I can remember. My parents have photographs of me pissed and passed out when I was two or three. <laughs> At a family wedding when I went round a family wedding and at family wedding in them days people were just so I'm kind of sta- giving you the impression of standing holding a drink at the side yeah and as a toddler I just went round this wedding and just sipped out of everyone's drinks because they were at my height <laughs> you know um which is probably not a good thing but like you know and it's been a part of my life almost ever since as soon as I could like many people it was my social life when I was you know 13 14 became a massive part of my scene as a um I suppose what you probably would have referred to I suppose people would have referred to me primarily as a rocker in other words you know as a teenager or someone with long hair that used to go and see motorhead you know and stuff like that yeah it was a beer fueled thing then I started working in you know hotels so it was all part of my life working in chefing became a massive part of my personal life um but my father taught me how to drink properly, respectfully. Yeah. Um, uh, taught me the difference between good and bad alcohol. Taught me how to be a good drunk, not a bad drunk, if that makes sense. It does. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, just, and it kind of, so when you caught me in telling that story, it, it's always been there. And, and I guess I told you the story of, you know, and you saw the, the picture of me having, you know, a, a, a pissed newt yeah, as the tattoo on my yeah. leg. Yes. <laughs> Which was this kind of thing to, well, how can I capture my life after after 50, 50 years? And the only way to capture it was through alcohol. That was that was the thing that had more meaning to me in my, my journey. Um, you know, and now I, I guess the irony of it is that I just earn a very respectable living and have just, as you know, just recently become a professor yeah. of alcohol studies, which is just so funny. <laughs> you know, it, it just makes me laugh sometimes, but, you know, it's been a really hard journey, but, yeah. I just think it's, like, proper interesting. It's amazing because alcohol was the love of my life, but, for the, like, it went the other way for me. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like, I was not... So it's special with it. So I think that stuff is a fine line, and that's a fine yeah. line for everyone. And I made different choices, and and they arrived at different reasons. So you know, we're talking about alcohol, but I was a big drug user as well. Yeah. Um, always what I would describe as the excessive end of recreational. So that means I would be using drugs every single day of my life, but never in a way in which it didn't stop me going and working in a you know, doing a 12, 14 hour day in a kitchen or something like that, you know. Yeah. You know, we would just have fag breaks, which inverted commas might be spliff breaks, all that sort of stuff, yeah. like, you know. Um, and there's a long story to how I arrived at becoming a social worker, but when I did finally become a social worker, 
One of the decisions I made, and I said this in the public did, lectures, yeah. I made that decision that the easiest thing for me to do was to give up illegal drugs, yes? Yeah. By then, the illegal drugs, yeah, they tailed off somewhat, so it was mostly just smoking spliffs here and there, you know, or, or whatever. But I made that decision to stop that because I just thought it's too complicated being the social worker that's then caught by the Rosas. Yeah. yeah and I just didn't want to go down that route, you know. Um I'd already given up the fags. Fags was the hardest drug for me of all of them to give up. Really, I had to, I had to ban myself from pubs for six months to give up. I tried giving up cigarettes three or four times and I don't know, like so many people, you'd be pissed somewhere and someone would have a fag in front of you and you'd, yeah, you'd just... The wheel just goes completely <laughs> yeah. for it. So the only way for me to give up cigarettes was to ban myself from pubs for six months, which I effectively didn't go to the pub, so I wasn't pissed, so I didn't get offered a cigarette. And So I'd already given up the, given up the fags, but... Um, and I just, well, I wasn't going to give up the alcohol as well. It wasn't ruining my life, yeah. you know. Well, that's it. Um, and I guess it had become like everyone, you know, if it doesn't make that mess, your body and your commitments just get older and more complicated and therefore there's less room to just spend all day getting pissed and stoned. And I've got a job and then I'm married and I've got kids. So, yeah. you know, life helps moderate my behaviour and I'm lucky that that happened. Because obviously other people make a mess of it before life gets to moderate it or they even make a mess of all of that life and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I'm mm. not in any illusions about any of that stuff. It's there. Yeah. You know, but, you know. But I suppose that's the difference with, like, addicts and alcoholics. It's like an obsession, isn't it? Like, of the mind, like, we're thinking about it all the time. Yeah, this is where we could get really controversial because I don't actually believe in addiction. No, This is where we could get really... And that might be the intellectual part of me that doesn't believe in addiction. I believe in everyone's right to call themselves an addict or an alcoholic or to say that, that they've had addiction. But yeah. I really don't think it's something that myself or other professionals or government should be using that language because I think it creates us and them populations and stigmatises. Yeah. But... Given that what you said, I absolutely agree with you that there is this sense in which for some people the the drink and drugs for whatever it's doing for you in your life, whatever problems it's solving, however whatever comforts it's giving, whatever social community you're engaging, it becomes the thing that becomes the compelling activity in your life. And it can become so compelling that you perhaps choose not to do some of the things that you ought to do even if that's as simple as being nice to your mum and dad or not taking a tenner out of your grand's purse or whatever else it might be yeah can, yeah. I, can I open that door a little bit <laughs> go on yeah, which door is that one because that's fascinating to me that because you know kind of um, being embroiled in judicial systems and um, drug and alcohol services yeah. and you know that whole yeah menagerie of services from quite a young age you know like 18 or 17 really um i've out and out of the hundreds of professionals that i've been involved with hmm. against my will pretty much most of the time um i've never heard anyone say they don't believe in addiction or the classification of addicts or, or anything like that so i'd like i just love to I don't, think yeah, so, I don't think it's controversial. I'd just like to know what you believe in. Okay, so 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 I think the way I want to do it is there are two or three parts of it for me. So if if I take the extension, yes, 
Like, for example, the extension for me would be saying, in which case it's okay to label people as junkies, yes? And I think people really identify that junkies is somehow really stigmatizing, yes? It's it's a nasty word and it's not what we should be calling people, yes? Okay, but if, but if you bring that kind of inwards and, and you talk about people being addicted, I think there's two problems with that for me from the professional or the society point of view i've got no issue with the individual so if, if, if an individual wants to say i'm an alcoholic they're an alcoholic and that's entirely up to them you know if i want to call myself a man i want to call myself a trans i want to call myself a, a christian that, that, you know any of those things yeah, and i don't yeah. call myself some of those things and i do call myself other things that's for me to do but i think the professionals and or the society and the government they have a different responsibility because language frames everything it, it frames the way in which we respond to people, yes? So part of my thing about not really wanting to believe in the concept of addiction is that I just don't... I think it invites people to say that actually all of the issues associated with complex drug and alcohol use are your fault. We don't own any responsibility. Whose fault? The individual drug users, you. yes? In other words, the rest of us don't own any responsibility. The fact that the school system shit... We don't have any responsibility for that, you know, none of that, yeah, because some people survive the, the garbage, we don't have to change the garbage, you know, the difference between, you know, because some people live on accounts, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that, that's one part of the problem is it resolve, it absolves society, the government and the professionals for saying, actually, we're part of the problem here. The only problem in the room is you as the individual. And I just think that's, that's absolutely wrong. But I think the second part for me is a much deeper philosophical argument that actually, what is the issue of choice here? So I believe in a philosophy called existentialism, which people will associate with a French philosopher called someone called Jean-Paul Sartre and stuff like that. Jean-Paul Sartre says that we all have choices. Some choices are less comfortable than others. And the ultimate example of an existential choice is imagine yourself in front of someone with a gun and you know that person is about to shoot you and you're about to die. You still have a choice at that moment where the bullet enters your body. You stand up tall and straight in front of them and it shoots you in the chest or you try to run away knowing it's hopeless and it shoots you in the back. And that's still a choice. It's an uncomfortable choice. It's a very limited choice but it remains a choice. And one of the things for me is that very few people in all of their consumption of alcohol and drugs actually have other people forcing those drugs physically inside them. So despite the complexity of the situation you find yourself in, you still at that moment personally choose to consume the drugs. They're limited choices, they're crap choices, they're painful choices but there's still also choices. So I've got these two different perspectives that really contribute to some understanding, if that makes sense. Yes? Yeah, I do. I, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. No, I get that. Oh, my God. That's yes. proper, like... You know, and, yeah. and I think... I suppose another example of where I don't like the language, you see, is I hear people refer to substance abuse, Yeah. Well, the only way to abuse a bag of cocaine or a bottle of whiskey is to put it on a table and smash it with a fucking club hammer. Yeah? Alcohol is designed 
to make us get intoxicated. That's its purpose or function. You know, it's designed maybe also to enhance a bit of flavour in meals and make food taste nice. But, you know, heroin is designed to be a painkiller. It's an appropriate painkiller if we give it in hospital, but somehow it's an, an inappropriate painkiller if people are self-medicating. People aren't abusing the drug. When people abuse stuff, they abuse their body or their neighbour's shed. Yeah, so all of this language frames the debate and it places all of the blame on people who are having really difficult lives and partly have been oppressed, partly people who are excluded from society. People have been treated shit by all the other people in power. Yeah, and they're deemed not good enough because they've not survived this journey without using a little bit more drink and drugs than everybody else. And I, I can't get, I can't go into that space. I understand this personal responsibility, which is the whole bit about the alcoholic and the twelve-step model, and I really support and understand that that you're responsible for making the changes yourself, and you've got to get out some bit of denial and all that other kind of stuff. But that's for you as the individual. That's not for the rest of us. Does that, does that make sense, Marcus? Yeah, yeah it does. <laughs> so, um, so there's not. A, a, so in your terminology, the terminology you prefer to use, mm. there's not a, there's not a heroin addict, there's a heroin consumer. Well, yeah, well I don't want to get into consumer because consumer and markets are part of neoliberalism and I don't support that either. That's I like that's the right I'm language. Sure. So for me, there is just an individual who takes drugs. So what word would you use for addiction? Hmm? What was the what's the replacement? Well, I, I think I've got different perspectives on it. So there is clearly the word dependency in relation to our physical and dependency psychological... doesn't make addiction, though, does it? And, like, you can be dependent, but not really an addict. How? Well, you can... It, What's the, what, uh, is the, what, what would you argue is, then, the difference between the two? Well, I've, I've been dependent upon alcohol for a very short amount of time when yes. I was in, working in Tenerife, because I couldn't get heroin. Yeah. Right, so, you know, kind of, I, I just cross-addicted very yeah. quickly because I had to have something. It's the first time it's ever happened, really, that I couldn't yeah. get my hands on it in, in yeah. many years. And I, and I do remember, I was working in a bar called the Wigan Pier, and I do remember even nipping to the bar next door before my shift at six, because I was like, I got to the point where I was having, like, you know, kind of shaking a bit if I didn't have it. So I'd neck a pint next door, knowing that all I had to do is walk into my bar and there'd be a pint or not bats waiting for me anyway. Yeah. But, um, but so I... I, I wasn't addicted to alcohol. I didn't want it, didn't enjoy it. It wasn't my thing. It was kind of something there, better than nothing yeah. at the time kind of thing. And then the second I found, but I was dependent. I don't, I, don't, I wasn't addicted. I didn't enjoy it. I wasn't craving it. It wasn't yeah. my thing. So the, the second I found heroin in Tenerife, I, I was like, ditched the alcohol immediately, didn't yeah. drink again. I went straight to well, that's about, that's, But that's just a much more straightforward conversation about your drug of choice. Yeah, but I was just trying to illustrate that I don't feel I was addicted to heroin and to alcohol, although I was dependent upon it. Yeah, but I'm not disputing the fact that you feel you were addicted to heroin because I think that's your choice. I wouldn't describe you as addicted. That's the point. And I don't think I should be describing you as addicted, yes? My responsibility is to... What's the word if someone's not... Is it dependent? Well, I think there is, a, there, I was about to say, there is an issue with dependency. So people can have physical, psychological and or social dependency. I mean, people are interested in and, and kind of say, well, how do you become socially dependent? And a very good example of a socially dependent individual is an individual who will not go to the pub as a non-drinker. If you think about that, that means they are completely dependent on alcohol in functioning in that environment. 
Yeah. So in other words, they will only get a taxi. They'll never be the driver. You know, they wouldn't go and, yeah. So, so that environment, they exclusively. So we can have different types of dependency. But I'd actually go on to use other expressions like someone who, you know, I'd want to describe the situation much more close as it is. Someone who is, you know, using a substance in a habitual and or daily manner to the point in time in which it is causing lots of significant problems for them personally and other people in their lives. Against their own will? Yes. Against their own will? Why don't, no, no. Because they've got a choice. They've got a choice. The will, yeah, I don't buy that bit of the addiction model. I I don't buy that bit of the addiction model. Because if that was the case, then no one would recover. And we're in here really to talk about recovery. Yeah, Uh, yeah. You know, and, 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 and recovery for me is almost the evidence that addiction in itself potentially doesn't exist. Because for me, the idea, therefore, of addiction is that there would be no escape from it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I love this notion. People say, you know, they, they they describe themselves as an addict in the way in which you've just described it, and continue to describe themselves as an addict even though they're no longer using. Well, yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, I start addictive behaviours. I yeah. do. Yeah. I, like I have addictive behaviours. It's just like it's not focused on heroin anymore. I would just call them excessively unhealthy behaviours or, or regular behaviours. <laughs> yeah. I, I just don't. I. I, 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 I I accept the individual's right to use the expression. I just don't think it belongs for other people to do. I, I think it's really unhelpful. Yes. I mean, there is a brilliant book out there by someone called John Booth Davis called The Myth of Addiction, which unpicks a lot more of this. And uh, yeah, and, and I think that's a great book and it, it's an interesting, you know, antidote to it. I mean, the other person who I really like, of course, is the, the, the Canadian guy, Bruce Alexander, who, and he talks about the globalization of addiction. So he kind of uses that word, even though he's probably countering against it as a, yeah, it's tough as a concept, to use, you know. it? especially when it's so ingrained and it's been like, of course, sent to me by professionals all my life. So it's, it's very, you know, this is this is the first time I've ever heard anybody not like kind of not believe in it. If you know, yeah, for, yeah, yeah. for all the reasons you've explained, so it's really interesting for me to, you know, to hear that. I feel part. You know, you know. Hopefully, we will get onto it. But you know, I, you know, as someone who is won't identify themselves as ever having been addicted, no matter how much stuff I do, and even though I still consume alcohol now, or or, um, um, and we could say the same about my relationship with running in, at various points in time, but, you know, um, and or someone who's would then, by definition, say, I'm not in recovery, but it's a friend of recovery and everything else. Yeah. I think somehow it's really beholden on, on, on people like me, and particularly someone that's got the kind of job I've got at the moment, you know, as a, you know, as a professor in a university, as people talking to government and professionals, I somehow have got responsibility to step into that space and get them to challenge the myths and the stereotyping and the blaming. And so I, part of it's about really challenging some of the use of that language in all that, you know, um, it, it becomes almost too easy to accept rather than question. Yes. Here, you know, um, so I'm really keen to do that, you know, as I am to explore what on earth is the definition of recovery that people want to accept. You know, I really dislike the use of the word recovery when it's used by government and or um, drug agencies like SMS or, you know, I, I, I don't think they are. I don't, that isn't recovery. 
you know, um, recovery is what goes on here, what goes on in Penryn, you know, yeah. it's not what, you know, so, well, let, you know, but they're so, only my choices, you know, I'm not right, <laughs> you know, that's the whole point, I'm not right any more right than anyone else's, I don't have an entitlement to be right, I just have an entitlement to have my view, I guess. <laughs> so when, when the government uses the term recovery, yeah. their, their version of recovery, or what they... <sighs> what they try and promote or what they do or isn't recovery for me it's uh, it's a little bit but not really I, 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 I you know recovery is one of those words that's become massively hijacked you know I, I don't know what you think but it's certainly what I think so you've, you've got this notion that um, I was I thought a lot about this over the over the recent years and I want to go all the way back to somewhere like 2005, 2006. So, you know, when recovery was just kind of talked about by some people outside of governments, yes? Recovery was something that people were doing, discussing in in certain spaces. And, And all of that space felt beyond treatment, beyond policy and beyond government. And within a four year period, the whole thing got sucked in completely. You ended up in 2008 with a Scottish government having something called the, a drug and alcohol policy or an alcohol policy called the road to recovery. You get 2010, the English government have put it in. By 2011 or 2012, you've got SMS or KAIS branding themselves as recovery-orientated services. Yeah? No, they were just using this language in a different way to describe the same shit that they were already providing to people, the same poor service focused on very short-term treatment outcomes throwing people out the door um wait until they came back next year they came back through the revolving door they could count them again they could count them each year and we get lots of people you know we're referring to the service and we get lots of people who are completing the service lots of people who are completing the methadone program lots of people completing their detox inverted commas but none of them were actually staying off drink or drugs they were just you know and uh, you know, I've known Marcus, when Marcus has had a relapse and gone through that cycle. So, yeah, you know, yeah. it's just... Yeah. Uh, just putting a bandage, like a plaster over it. Yeah, they were just hijacking it, absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and for me, recovery, if they really understood what it meant, re- recovery is the stuff that happens after that. Yeah. See, my head's fell off a bit here now. Oh, like, okay, I'm now, sorry. Like, <laughs> no, in a good way. Like, I, I'm just thinking now, like, I, I don't actually know what I'm thinking, but, like... You've just rocked me a bit, <laughs> in, in a good way, in a yeah. good way. Um, I mean, I've been struggling with this stuff for years and years and years in my own yeah. head. I struggle with this stuff to try and explain it to other people. I have to write it down. Um, I feel really passionate about it. And for recovery, I've felt really passionate that the mainstream has wanted to hijack it a back away from the individuals, you know. Yeah. If you just stepped 25 years ago, the only people who were talking about recovery were people inside AA. Yeah. And NA, you know, and or when people broke down on the side of the road, because like all words, it has a, another meaning in yeah. life, of course, <laughs> you know. And you go to the average Joe in the street and you actually say to them, you know, what's the recovery service? They may still say to you, it's the AA and they don't mean Alcoholics Anonymous. No. They, mean, yeah. they, they mean the other AA. Yeah, and I, I love that irony that they're both recovery services yeah. and they're both AA. Um, um, but I just think it's been a little bit hijacked uh, and, and it doesn't belong there. If you're a clinical psychologist or you're a prescribing nurse in SMS, your job 
is to help people get off drugs. Your job is to help people stabilize them. Don't maintain all of the money that's kept in the drug treatment service and suck it up into your agendas. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and then claim you're doing the recovery stuff because you're not. You're not even there. Yes. Yeah. The government <laughs> do it sometimes because it's what fills the ballot box. And I hate ballot box politics, but that's what goes on. In other words, let's do something and let's find a way in creating a system that we can then say this stuff on the dispatch box because it sounds good and then people will vote for us and we get back in. Yeah. Where's, where's, where's the commitment or investment in people's lives or change, you know? Yeah. So I think a very good example for me, where we, let's go back to where we just started for a little bit. So, uh, you know, the, doing the, the, the recovery expeditions and, and doing that stuff. Um, um, and I remember having someone from one of the SMS services. I actually think that we're in, in Wrexham or Flintshire rather than done over that way. And one of them approached me at some point in time and said, well, how do I get to do these recovery walks with SMS? And I went to him, you can't. And they went to me, what do you mean you can't? Well, I said, and then I said to him, okay, you probably can. But in order for you to do so, you're going to have to go through an awful lot of red tape. You're going to have to get NHS clearance. Yes. You're probably going to have to do a health and safety form in multiple triplicate. Before you're even allowed to do it, the NHS is probably going to have to send you away on a three-year training course in order to do mountain guiding. Yes. Yeah. And then none of it will actually be recovery because you'll have asked the individuals to have signed a form before they go out on the day. Yes. And or you'll be wandering with them, clearly identifying and wearing your T-shirt that says, I'm the NHS worker and you're the addict. Come back to your language, Marcus. Yes. So (laughs) a recovery walk, yes, if you're genuinely serious, is actually two people in their own time with a shared commonality going on a shared journey together and doesn't involve any of that stuff. Yeah. So I said to that worker, if you really want to do it, you need to do it on a Saturday in your own time. That's not <laughs> yeah. Well, I never saw that person again. Never once did they ever come out with us on a Saturday walk yeah. in their own time. Yes? Because yeah. they wanted to own the recovery in their job for their benefit. Yeah, like personal gain. Not the benefit of the individuals. Do you know what it reminds me of? It's like, you know, have you seen videos of people on like social media and they're like giving homeless people like thousand pounds or like giving them all food and stuff and they're like filming it and it's like if you were fucking serious you'd just do it why are you filming yeah, it the moment you're, you're filming, just doing yeah. it for clout that's like all yeah. it's for you're not in recovery you're not passionate you don't care yeah. so why are you yeah. doing that so kind of um the strap line we're thinking about for we're for the um the podcasts are recovery podcasts life after addiction or something like that yeah. So, and it just reminded me what you're talking about. You're dead right. Being in treatment isn't recovery. I mean, it's nice to think for the individual if they're in a rehab or something, they're in recovery, but they're kind of not. I mean, don't take anything away from anyone. And it's like fair play. You're in treatment. You're in somewhere safe. You're not doing what you're yeah. doing. Amazing. But recovery, and I thought the same when I was in treatment. Oh, I'm in recovery. But yeah. it wasn't until so, I left and I was out there and I was kind of doing it on my own, living, you know, and learning how to live. That was the tough bit, learning yeah. how to live. Yeah, so one of the things I took, I've taken away from years and years of this stuff, um, um, whether it's my personal life, my best friends, you know, the ones that have died and all the rest of it, the ones that are still here, the ones that... 
that that are in recovery as my best friends and some of my best friends would call themselves in recovery and will have called themselves addicts and god the number of arguments i used to have with motorhead john about this stuff before he died um but they were you know mutually exclusive mutually inclusive conversations as it were um is you, you can instill this down to one very simple expression it's easy to get off and it's hard to stay off yeah so why on earth do we assume for one moment that 90% of all of the treatment eggs or all of the conversations or everything else and all of the money and everything else should be in the services to get people off? It's just the start. Mm. And what we've had is the expansion of the drug and alcohol services to try to step into the staying off space. But they can't do. They're only open nine till five. Yeah. You know, they're not there at the evenings. They're not there at the weekends. They're not there in two years time. They're not there the first time someone's going around to their family back for Sunday dinner. I've got a really good friend of mine that Marcus and I share in, in common, and I don't want, don't want to name him for the sake of this story. But he'd been in North Wales for about two or three years and um, in recovery and everything else. And he came round to my family house for uh, a meal with uh, my wife and my kids. I'm going to get a bit funny about this now. And he was sat around our table and he started crying. I was really emotional and a bit about it. And I just said to him, what's up? And he went, it's the first time I've sat around a table in three years and had a meal with someone. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah? Yeah. That's where recovery begins. That's probably where his recovery really started. Up until everything else was the maintenance post-treatment. Hadn't actually begun to live again. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, so he'd, he'd, he'd done six months in rehab, whatever he'd done before rehab to get to referred to rehab. That was the bit of getting off. Then he'd done two years maintaining that, not really branching, not really yet quite getting to living. He was doing some stuff, don't get me wrong, you know, volunteering and uh, and stuff like that and things, but not really quite getting there. And then suddenly being in touch with the bits that you missed and the bits that you wanted as part of your future life again. Yes. It's like experiences like that, sharing them with people. Yeah. And that's and that's recovery. And yeah. none of that. I, I wrote this the other day. Um, I was reflecting on an interview I'd given someone um, talking on recovery, a bit like I'm talking to you now. And I'd said this expression that recovery is about life and doesn't belong with the professional. I had a similar kind of emotional experience yeah. where after being invited to um, a barbecue mm. and... It was normal people that had invited me to a barbecue. Yeah. It wasn't the services that had invited me. It wasn't, you know, because you get some service invite everyone to a barbecue or something like they used to do at Champions House kind of thing. And it was the first time, like, just regular folk had invited me into their world. And, yeah, I, I, so when you just said that, I really connected. I was like, I know how he feel and yeah. felt. It was, like, something quite special there. Mm. Yeah, and eternal, like, you know, was actually conceived pretty much in a jail cell, you know, and me thinking about, you know, what I could do and, you know, how to get back to what I wanted to do because there was nothing down for me. And Eternal was set up for the now what, you know, when you come out of jail, when you come out of rehab or any other bullshit program out there or whatever, there should be a, a sign saying, please mind the gap. Yeah. And... Yeah. Um, be, you know, between the bubble and real life. Yeah. And yeah, okay, I'm not taking drugs around the clock anymore. I'm not committing crime around the clock anymore. And oh, I don't have appropriate housing, but I have a roof over my head. Um, and 
okay, now what? I was a very, very busy addict. I don't know what else to call it. Um, in addiction, I was a very, very busy getting and using. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I was round the clock. Uh, and now I'm, I've got 24 hours in a day, and what do I do with all the hours? So that's what Learn to love up. yourself is what you need to do. Oh. <laughs> you know, but, and, and so I can see, I can see Kelly, your, your, your head's going like... <laughs> I'm just like, can you be my sponsor? <laughs> no, seriously, they're like, this, you just like, it's like a whole different perspective on things because the things that I do with you, Marcus, at Eternal, like that for me is recovery because I'm not stuck in the bloody rooms of AA, I'm not, like, I don't have to do a share after a certain amount of sobriety. I don't have to do this and that. And I don't feel pressured. And, like, I feel like I get treated like normal. We don't have the language here. We don't have the services language. We don't have rehab mm. language. We don't have any of the recovery products. We don't use that language we, we because that's not normal. No. You know, that's... And, and, it, and, and, and the, as I've already said yeah. several times, the language really complicates yeah. this stuff. Yes. And, and, of course, there is no such thing as normal, of course. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the complicated there's things. There's abnormal. It, 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 you know, but, yeah, there's, yeah, there's probably certainly abnormal, but there is no yeah. such thing as normal, of course. Yeah. And I think the moment we do that, we're already then casting judgment, you know. Yeah. I remember when I qualified, this, was, this is a completely different story, but it gives you an example. I remember when I was qualifying as a social worker, I sat in, in, in the social work class, and, and, and they were just asking people about, well, what might be some of the things that you'd want to take you know, um, people's kids away from them. Yeah. And there was this woman in this class and went, well, if I went in the house and, you know, they, they were, you know, the kids were sleeping on the floor and there were no beds. And I'm sitting in this class as also training to be a social worker going, well, I've got kids. They sleep on the floor. We haven't got any beds. <laughs> <laughs> But that's a lifestyle choice. Like, you know, they had a mattress, but we didn't have beds. Like, it was a lifestyle choice. Yeah. Um, apart from anything else, you wouldn't want a bed in a little six-foot crogloft bedroom anyway. There was no room for a bed. But it was that kind of... So th- people can get to places of describing normal, which is really unhealthy. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think... I like the idea that the recovery space is beyond the treatment space, beyond the treatment language. I think that's really important. Yeah, you can call it beyond addiction. That's fine. But it, it, it's, it's somehow beyond that space. Um, and you will remember, Marcus, that one of the things that I got involved really early was just creating space where people could talk without any of that about what was going yeah. on for them in the recovery journey. And we used to literally just, our objective was just to provide space for people to be. There was no other agenda. Yes? We weren't controlling what people did in that space, what was the subject. But we knew just by bringing people together in the space that had got a shared journey, but without anyone controlling it, whereby the the next step was whatever they wanted to collectively do together, that process in itself is what does it. And, of course, that's partly what you do here. Yeah. You know, but people go on a shared journey in making a film and a project and no one knows where that's really going from the beginning. And it's created by all of you and you all kind of have the ownership and, and, and that's partly how it works. And even something like AA, and I, I really don't want to knock AA because I, I'm a big fan of, of 12 Step, which you don't always hear from professional perspectives, but I'm a huge fan of it. If it works for people, it works for people and people just need to do it. There's no issue with any of that, you know, don't 
label it up as God or label it up as a bunch of addicts supporting addicts that won't yeah. allow the drug worker to know whether or not or the social worker whether they've been or not. Right? Stop that. That's not your <laughs> business. If it's helping them, let you know. But I think even that ties it up for people in an expectation. You know, if you go to, and I've been to many a, a, an AA and NA meeting, the, the open ones, of course, not the not the closed ones. But if you go, you know what to expect. There's Actually, you'll see the same pattern yeah. of things happen over that period. Now, that's really comforting and reassuring, but it's not really... And it's supportive and in it, and at some level it's enabling, but it's not growth-giving. No, because it's a bridge to living your best yeah. life, isn't it? Do you know Recovery I mean? is about growing again. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, because it's... It can be a part of your life, but it's not your life. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You've got other things in your life. Yeah. It's the thing that enables you to live, but it's not the living. Totally. And I get that now. Yeah. And I think that's why my mind's a bit blown. Yeah. To be honest with you, because I've never interviewed or talked to someone, like, about this type of stuff. In in this way, if you, do you know what I mean, Marcus? Yeah. Like, so... It's my life and passion, and, yeah. and I suppose what I hope that's coming across. And, and I, I'm really passionate in it. And obviously, my passion is coming from a slightly different place. Almost everyone else you see and/or in a, in a recovery space is passionate in part because they're in recovery themselves. Yeah, I'm equally as passionate for it, but I can't make that claim. Yeah, no yeah. matter how much alcohol and drugs I've done, it never fucked my life up. Albeit by luck. I've woken up three, four times in my life um, when the bed's been covered in vomit. Well, that's, you know, if that's the only thing you remember when it is, you could have easily not made that day. Yeah, that's quite common to quite, you know, yeah. that's Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I've, you know, done those things. I was saying to you earlier that, you know, I've um, engaged in all sorts of illegal activities when I've reflected on mm. them would have given me a long stretch, but I never got nicked for one reason whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do have a criminal record, but not drug-related. Yeah. Um, um, so those things are luck, and I could be sat exactly where you two are, on the opposite side, but you two interviewed me, whereby actually I'd have also had to have done my stretch. I'd have had to have done my time in rehab or whatever else, but, you know, I got away with it. Yes? Yeah. And lots and lots of people get away with it. And I often, I used to remember when I worked to probation and I was doing drug and alcohol groups and, and people would sit in the room and they'd go, well, actually, I'm just like anyone else and it's unfair that I'm in here having to do these 12 sessions with you because the court says and probation says. And I go to them, yeah, I'd agree. And I'd have to say sometimes to some people, well, the only reason you're in here and those two mates of yours outside aren't is because they're a little bit cleverer or brighter than you. Well, what do you mean? What did you get arrested for? I got arrested because there was no tail light on my car. Well, if you're going to carry drugs in your car, get the tail light fixed. <laughs> the police weren't looking for you with your drugs. They were looking for the tail light. So it's all luck yeah. at some level in all that process. It's not an us and them population. And I think that's partly that comes back to our story about why I can't get to do with addicts and labelling some people as the bad people. And some people are good. Everyone in society is using ways of self-medicating and coping, whether it's watching the soaps, whether it's having credit cards with Debenhams, whatever, you know. Yeah. We're all doing some of that stuff. 
And most of us get away with it most of the time. Some of us have skirmishes and some people, you know, so let's not say there's a, a population of good people and we're all doing all right and there's nothing wrong with us. And, uh, you know, and there's a population over there of bad people that have messed it up. We're all riding the same helter skelter. Some of us are just luckier than others. Yeah. I've never thought of it as bad as bad or good people. It's like I did bad things, but I think society does. Yeah, it's like a stigma around. And I think, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, Ken. That's what stigma does. That, yeah. Once you start calling people, and I you chose that really stigmatizing word. Once you call someone junkie, we think of that as being. But all of these other labels can be on that way for journey, not for the people in drug and alcohol, but from the people outside labeling. Yeah, it. I mean. Yeah. Good people do bad things due to yeah. desperation. Yeah. i got a friend of mine, Trev, he's, he's got this lovely expression, and I do like it, and there's a, a lot of meaning in it. Uh, and, yeah, good and bad has all sorts of connotations with, you know, religion and, and good and evil and all stuff, and I don't mean it in that kind of context. But he's got this fantastic expression no, that says, he says, all the bad drunks give all the good drunks a bad name. <laughs> you know, and in a way... Drink and drug taking, in, even to levels of mass intoxication, um, is endemic to human nature for a very, very long time. And we just keep changing the rules on this stuff. Yes? And it's, just, you know... Um, and so I think what we should be collectively doing from a society point of view, let alone the individual point of view, is just enabling people to live better and healthier lives let's not worry about what is their recreational choose choice or their particular way of coping it let's not cast a stigma on it yeah i could get intellectually slobby and, and then go well you know and say well coronation street opium for the masses <laughs> yes you know why are they not you know going to the ballet but it's just a different choice of the same thing you know, and I and I'm going. I could rant forever about this, Caitlin. But it's like <laughs> it's like social workers who who go in and and, and you know and, and and cast a judgment on someone's family and 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 their drink and drug use and stuff. Yeah. Then what do they do at the weekend? First thing they do on a Friday night, open two bottles of red wine. They'll even get pissed while their kids are in the house. But that's not child protection. Yeah. Well, it would be if something happened as an accident and someone was called, but the accidents don't happen, so somebody isn't called, so by luck it doesn't arrive at that situation. Mm. Mad. <laughs> I know. Sorry, I, I really didn't mean to blow your head. I, you know. No, it's, no I'm, it's good. It's, I'm just... Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Can, I, can I ask? So yeah, go on. It, and, I, and I reckon you've probably thought about this. So if you had the power... Mm. To change policy, mm -hmm. right? And you know, Caitlin and I were talking about it like over lunch. I was like, you know, I'm not sure either of us really knew what policy was, you know, like a drug drug strategies and stuff. And I was thinking, well, you know, is this is a is a drug policy how we treat people, mm. how people get referred? You know, what the gold standard is of treatment is it is it is it all in that package kind of thing where money's allotted to so. I really like this question, and the last time I was doing a podcast with someone, they asked me the very same question. Oh, so I was sorry, doing a podcast. <laughs> I was doing a podcast. I was doing a podcast with someone for um, um, about domestic abuse and um, um, 
uh, drug and alcohol. And they asked me the same question. Um, and I'm going to answer your question. I didn't really answer their question in the way in which they imagined, because I just said it wouldn't be the thing I'd do. If I had that power as prime minister, it wouldn't be where I'd start. It wouldn't interest me. What, the I'd policy? So it's, yeah, drug and alcohol policy just yeah, wouldn't I'm interest not, me. Not, if I had yeah. that power, drug and alcohol policy would not be where I, I would be starting with social justice. I'd be starting with housing. I'd be starting with education. Mm. I'd be starting with all of these things first. Yes. So, But putting that aside... If all I had was drug and alcohol policy in my domain and I couldn't change the um, the garbage that goes on society about making the rich really rich and the poor poorer and all that exclusion stuff, which massively contributes to people's experiences of mm-hmm. oppression, disadvantage and everything else. I know some people have got personal trauma, but let's, uh, you know, let's also say there's a lot of societal environmental stuff that contributes to all of this. Yeah. Putting that aside... Then, then what would I be doing? I'd essentially be turning the egg on its, or, or, you know, I'd be turning the thing on its head and I'd be going to the drug and treatment services and I would go to them um, and I'd get around that table with the APB or whatever else we want to call it in, in the local authority with all of the spending on drug and alcohol and I would say to the existing treatment services, you've got 10 years. So you've got 90% of the budget at the moment for the getting off and 10% of the budget is being spent on the staying off. At the end of this 10-year period, 90% of the budget is going to go for the staying off. That'd be amazing. And 10% of it's going to stay. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, you're going to lose 10% every year. Yes, and you're going to gain 10% every year. Wow. Yes. And we're going to practice what we preach. Prevention is better than cure. Governments have been saying it for ages, whether it's child protection, whether it's drug and alcohol, whether it's mental health, whether it's families, flying starts. And they all keep saying prevention. But coming back to what you were talking about, Kayleen, everyone just spends all the money on the sticking plaster all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if we just keep doing that in perpetuality, all we've got is money left for the sticking plaster. Yeah. And the number of people coming and asking for the sticking plaster keeps growing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we've actually got to stop people coming and asking for the sticking plaster. And if we believe that... Yeah, and so I don't know if you heard in the news today, but but Mark Drakeford, you know, he was trying to defend to the to the to the English news media why the Welsh government t- today have decided to activate the process of giving two years universal income to care leavers because yeah, it's that belief in if we give these care leavers, and he was trying to say to them, this is not extra spending. He was saying this on the radio this morning. This is the same money that I'd have to spend if these people were in, if these young people were in the care home, yeah. If the social workers going to see them, if they were in the youth justice system, if we'd got them, this is the same money. I'm just taking the money from there and I'm giving it to these young people at the two most vulnerable years of their life and saying, go and make something of your life such that you then, you know. Not the treatment bit, but go make something of your life <laughs> such that you then don't come and ask us for lots of sticking plasters as an adult, which is going to cost us even more money in the end. Yeah. But also it's the same people asking for that sticking plaster yeah. on the, like, you know, like myself. Like yeah. just going round and round and round within services. I, I used to hear people say, and they used to defend that because Prochascalum de Clementi said that's what happens in a cycle of change. What, really? So people must relapse. Therefore, we've got to expect them to come through our service for seven times before we can finally help them. I know, but if there's something that, that people can actually go to, you know, kind of one, once people kind of, 
get the, the drink and drugs out of themselves mm. and they enter into recovery after period. If there's something afterwards, you know, that the, the, there isn't. There's, no, there's, yeah, there's, there's just, just nothing. That's what we try to be, something set up for people like, we're the now what? Yeah. But before... Before you set up Eternal, I didn't know where the now what was. Okay, now what? And that, I mean, that's a classic example of the wrong language that's used in drug and alcohol relapse. Yes? Yeah. So you have someone that's just done six months, nine months, a year, even just 30 days. Yes? And the first day that they do some more drink or drugs, everyone says that they've relapsed. Everyone has a conversation with them about all the bad things they've done on that day. No one has a conversation with them about all of the positives of stuff they've done in the 30 days or the six months or a year. No one uses the word to say, well, you've just had a slip for today. If you carry on for the next four months, then I might call it a relapse. But for today you've had a slip, how can we still keep you in this new position? Yeah. Not label you, stigmatise you. Well, that's just what happens to you because you're a bloody addict, you're a drug user, you're going to... This is an inevitable part of the journey that you're on, so we might as well stop providing with any more support now. We won't talk about the good stuff. Um, come back and see me in a month's time when you're ready to join the front of the queue for another methadone script, and we'll put you through the circle all again and all the rest of it. Yes? Yeah. Yeah? And so we... we we actually, and this is why I'm so passionate about recovery, one of the things about recovery is that it's a belief that people can change. But it's not a naive belief, and it's not a belief tied up in, well, that's it, that's abstinence for the rest of their life. That means people aren't going to make mistakes. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> You're going to make mistakes. Mark's going to make, I'm going to continue to make mistakes in my yeah. life. Making mistakes is human. It's how we learn. It's how well, we grow. Well, I was about to say that. It's all a learning process, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, Wolf. I'm not saying relapse is the right word. But in, I might, I think I'm might well of, and this is my mindset, right? That I know somebody out there would probably share as well. If somebody said to me, "Oh, you've just had a slip," for me that would be too soft to think. I'm not sure I use that words with people. Don't get me wrong, and I've I've known you to have a relapse, Marcus. (laughs) In other words, the word "re" when you've returned. To absolutely the old behaviour and yeah, the old patterns and everything else. Yeah. I think on the first day, people haven't done that yet. No, and that's no. my point. They've not yet returned. But if they I, may if well be on the journey to returning, but they have not yet returned on day one. Got you. I don't know it's if I'm... It's really I, important. I hear you. I, and I get it. I'm just not sure if I would have heard... If I, you know, so somebody's calling what... Like, so, okay, so day one of using again for me after a, a period yeah, yeah. of abstinence, uh, had somebody called it a slip... I might have thought, yeah, it's just a slip. I'll have another slip tomorrow. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd use any of that language with someone rather than just have a conversation about that. I just wouldn't want to talk about the drug use on that day. No. I'd want to talk about the last 30 days. No, but I have heard that language used before. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. And I I, I, I accept what you're saying, really. Um, But we have to have something, whatever we call it, a trip or something. You know, no one's recovery journey goes like this in a in a in a singular uphill line and then reaches a plateau. You know, uh, recovery journeys are, are they're bumpy. Yeah. So yeah. we've got to describe a way of describing th- the small downward slopes yeah. 
when the overall journey is in the right direction. We've got to find a way of describing that that doesn't condemn people the moment that something slightly wobbly happens. As someone who's never experienced a slight downward motion rather than, you know, I've gone off a cliff every time, like a three-year cycle kind of yeah. every time I've relapsed it's like three mm. years with crime in there mm. and all the rest of it and you know, heavy heavy drug use yeah. of you know all the well mm. you know predominantly heroin and crack yeah. but maybe your wobbles don't occur in you know from my perspective maybe the wobbles don't occur in the drug and alcohol bit maybe the wobbles are occurring in the ups peaks and troughs of your mental health or maybe they're appearing in terms of your I social think, life yeah, oh. that's me I have a lot of ebbs and flows like with me moods and that like yeah. My old behaviours will be there, like, my, like, reverting back to type, that's the only way, like, I'd describe it, is, like, I can be, like, have a bit of a tantrum, not as bad as I used to before, like, I stopped drinking, but... See, and this is what I like about... And I have a breakdown, like, I'm dramatic, and, like, I have, like, a little breakdown over, like, stupid little things, like, catastrophising if my hair's not right or something, and I think, no, that's, like, me old, the old me. And what I like about recovery communities is that people will point this out to you. If the only measure of that recovery journey is whether you're using or not, yes, which is maybe the yardstick the professionals are more likely to use or the social workers like to use or the police like to use, whether or not I'm catching you on CCTV camera, of course, then that conversation never happens until you've essentially, you know, to use an, an A expression, you've fallen off the wagon, as it were. You've, you've completely fallen off. And the thing I really like about the recovery community, and I was only hearing this the other day from this lad in Penryn, was that people pull you up, to use an expression, people pull you up short about the about the slightly other stuff, the stuff that kind of says that, you know, there's a little bit of your old behaviour, your old yeah. self, your old language, your old talking. You know, and, and have, have, think about that before you even get to that place of the whole, the whole yeah. wagon, the shit and the caboodle, you know. Um, and I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I, I accept what you're saying. And I think this is the whole problem with language. And it's sometimes why it's easier at moments to try and write this stuff down, which is what I enjoy in my job, in a sense, because you have to spend a long time thinking about those pages and revisit them when we have conversations you know, the words kind of come out, they come out quite quick and they're, and, and they're never 100% right, you know. But the same occurs to the writing, of course. If you go and look at something you wrote 10 years ago, you don't like it anyway. You know, so you probably go same when you look at film markers, you probably go, actually, I reckon I could have done a much better shot now than I did then, yes. Yeah, because, yeah, different equipment and all the rest of it. Yeah, there's always something, you know, and I think, there's, um, I think that's part of it as well, you know, perfectionism and stuff. And you always want to, I think it's part of the condition. Um, yeah. And the mindset of me and a lot of other people that have experienced the kind of life that I've had, we, we have that, oh, I, don't, I don't know what language to use in front of you, <laughs> of obsessive nature. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, I swear, you, you might... Uh, big, <laughs> and I think, I think we all have it to some degree or another and some things can do it. And yet if you were to ask my kids, they'd probably tell you that I'm a bit like that with work sometimes, you know. You know, like, God, Dad, you're always working. I don't think I'm working at all now, you know. When I was a chef, I used to work, like, you know, all the hours under the sun, like, you know, and I only do a 50 or 60-hour week now, and I think it's not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have an outlet for my perfectionism you know, nowadays, you know, in, in the edit suite, you know, it's got to be perfect for the client. It's, yeah. it's got to be, and that that's kind of my outlet. And because so, you're doing something that you the, love. And the creativeness. And, yeah. you know, Same with you, like, you're obviously very passionate about and creative. what you're doing. Yeah. 
I mean, my biggest struggle in all of this is actually, you know, I'll be really honest with you guys. My biggest struggle in all this is actually about being a man. And I don't, I carry the weight at times. I carry the weight of the world of the shit that men do to women. And I can never be a good enough man on this planet. And I really struggle with that. And that's the bit that I try to get perfect all the time. And I don't do it very well. Right. You know, um, so that's my struggle yeah. in a funny sort of way where I really put a lot of this stuff in about trying to be that human being, you know. How, how does that kind of manifest? How do you kind of... How does it manifest like, myself? Yeah, what kind of behaviour do you have? Oh, I get really upset if I raise my voice. I can be really conscious sometimes in a meeting if I suddenly feel like I've just talked over a, a female. I, I mean, I was conscious just a moment ago I talked over Caitlin and I shouldn't have done so and it's just like, you know... <laughs> I, I, so I can kind of an over-consideration comes out. Sometimes, yeah. I, um, but then the other stuff is that I don't want to be... I'm constantly rejecting the societal image of man or, or, or machismo as well. You know, and so I just hate all that stuff as well. And some kind of expectation that, you know, you'll wear a suit you'll be the bread you know all that kind of mm. stuff as well I just can't be doing with any of that so it's always a, a you know, it's a really complicated thing um, so it, we all have these these struggles that eat away with us and, you know where do you think that comes from then? oh in part it comes from the fact that my mother was a strident feminist it comes from the fact that my father probably wasn't as lovely a man as he was and my mum loved him and all the rest of it he probably actually wasn't good enough. He didn't step up to the plate enough in and around the home. Yeah, didn't yeah. do enough. Yes, comes from all my exposure of. Well, my sister was. My sister got married. Her first marriage was just one of domestic violence and arsehole, cocaine fueled arsehole to that. Yes, yeah. um, um, but just. Where do, where do you want me to look? Boris Johnson. Where do I need to look? Donald Trump. You know, there's <laughs> yeah. a moral responsibility on me to do something different. You know? Yeah. I can't... I, I can't. Oh, that's not you. You're not Boris. I know, I know, I know. They have a choice. They make the wrong choice. Uh, you make the right choice. I know, but it, it, it's so that some of that stuff becomes, you know, really important. And sometimes you can't do enough. Can I just backtrack a minute? Yeah, yeah, go on. Right, I'm not sure how much it's about recovery, but yeah, by all means. I'd just like to get back to... Um, kind of, I, I kind of did work out. It's not about me, this bit about mm. recovery, but it's. I've only got my story to kind of refer to. Yeah, really, yeah of course. That I know intimately. Um, so my kind of three-year cycle was... Uh, there's no real... It wasn't particularly coincidental that I hadn't had any treatment hadn't done any head work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was an untreated addict, in my terminology, I mm, know. Um, yeah. I was an untreated addict. So, okay, I was doing different things for, for small amounts of time in, you know, kind of film and music and, and, and stuff. But um, it was a white knuckle kind of recovery. There was no knowledge. I didn't know about myself. Certainly mm. hadn't had any self-love. I still had that self-loathing, that self-hatred, that low confidence, that feeling of just absolute worthlessness, yeah, yeah. imposter syndrome, every kind of negative thought you can have about yourself. And of course, the guilt and the shame of um, what I'd done in addiction, which wasn't, you know, I'd never hurt anybody physically. There's no terrible, you know, I'd never, never physically hurt anybody. My, my bad things in addiction were 
and I've never mugged anybody or anything. It was um, anything from petty shoplifting mm. to kind of, you know, reasonable size conspiracies to, to supply um, those kind of things. You know, lots of theft and family and friends and all that kind of stuff. So, the, the, you know, I was doing bad things. But, um, so there was all that shame, guilt and loathing upon my shoulders for all those years. Mm. And my, my, my recovery, such as it was, was a white knuckle recovery. And even every couple of months, I was still picking up, you know, mm. okay. It wasn't going back to off the cliff. So maybe there was a bit of a dip actually thinking about it with someone that I'd been to a rehab that wasn't really rehab in Common Bay. Um, but, um, and it wasn't until, and I'd been to like four kind of rehabs before. They'd all kind of mm. painted themselves up. The brochure was said rehab. They weren't. Mm. They weren't rehab. They were little more than hostels. Mm. There was no program. There was no. Mm. There was nobody <laughs> within those because what I'd had for twenty five <laughs> years was people telling me how to stay clean. It I was, was just about to say right, the very same point. Right, it, it wasn't until I had people in front of me who had been through addiction that was showing me how to live clean mm. by example. You know, but I wanted to make that point just listening to you that, that you know it, it occurs to me that you know that difference between what the treatment agencies do and they actually want your behaviour to be good for the benefit of others, and what you were describing there in that 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 period was that this lack of what I would call much more simple concept that's beyond drug and alcohol, but it's a part of recovery, mm. which is learning to self care. Self-care is a really difficult stuff. We don't do enough of it, yes? And, of course, if we suddenly do too much of it, then everyone calls us selfish. Yes? <laughs> can't win. Yes. You can't win. No, no, no. No, you can't win. And self-care becomes really important, the looking after yourself. But suddenly it doesn't take much for people to then suddenly say that behaviour is selfish. You know, Um um, but it's very important we do that. And I don't think that stuff is afforded enough space. So the change behavior objectives, if you think about it, where treatments after the change behavior objectives, they're after, what are they after? They don't want you in hospital. They don't want you in the criminal justice system. Who doesn't? Society stroke the government, yes? Right, okay. Yes, so don't, they, don't want, they don't want the addicts, if we use that expression, they don't want them in the hospital, they don't want them in the criminal justice system, and they want them back out at work at paying taxes. I, None of that is about what the individual needs or wants internally to them. Those goals aren't about what the individual wants. And it makes me laugh, really. Yes, because if you were to ask people what do they want, you know, walking through drug and alcohol agencies, some people have get into a headspace where they think those things, but they wouldn't say that. They would say to you, well, actually, I just want a room of my own that I can call my own without losing it. Actually, I want to have dinner with my mum and dad for the first time in five years. I want my sense of smell to come back. I actually want to notice that there's some leaves on the trees. I think... I think the, the the headline for me would be happy. I just want to be happy. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the and then the kind of the tree going down from that would incorporate all those yeah. things. Okay, so how do we get to happy? Okay, so they want to sell us the wrong sort of happiness because the wrong sort of <laughs> happiness they want to sell us is nine to five in a call centre. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. And I always felt, you know, yeah. if like, you get yourself a job in a call centre, everything will be all right. If you give up drugs and get yourself a job in a call centre, everything will be all right. No, it won't. Oh, it won't. Yeah, but if it does, more power to you. But uh, yeah, it wouldn't. And I'm not knocking people who work in call centres, but it just it won't. Because I was a, I was found like give people more responsibility, they become more responsible. Yeah, they can. We can do more. You know, we're incredibly busy people in our addictions. We were high functioning. You know, to get through life, we were high functioning. So don't stick us in a charity shop flogging cardigans. You know, if that works for you, brilliant, and that is, you know, it's a great way to give back. But there's more. That, but you know, don't be surprised do if you give power to the recovery community, and a bunch of people start to set their own organisation up and go on the different rule and say, actually, this is what we want to do with the place, and this is how it runs, and this is the effective thing we do. Oh, and I'm sorry, it doesn't agree with your picture or yeah. definition, but it this this is where we've arrived at. Yeah. Yes. You know. I won't go into it for too far, but. We had an attempt at a hostile takeover very early on by okay. by services because they wanted to own it. We weren't anything at the time. We were nothing. Just now, you know, just yeah, yeah, you know. But we kept autonomous. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we had lots of the same conversations at Penryn. Oh, really? About keeping autonomy. Oh, yeah. You know. Sorry, they won't get it because we're not out to make. So go on, Kaylin. Sorry, what does autonomy? Autonomy mean? means being able to have control yourself, being able to self-govern. Okay. And the idea is this. I said this a little bit earlier, if you remember, the idea that actually the recovery organisations get sucked up by the big oh, organisations yeah. to, to feed their agendas, yeah. whereas actually my version of recovery is beyond them uh, and autonomy means that actually the people who make up the rules of what goes on in here the journey that goes on in yeah. here is just done by all of the folk in eternal media whether yeah. they're either in recovery themselves mm. or they're friends of recovery and i like the expression friends of recovery yeah. and that's probably yeah, that's cool. an important expression to get our head around um and so that's that's what the autonomy means that your that, that that journey on direction and what you think should go on in this space is determined by you and it's yeah. not determined by either a government a strategy document or some cash that's given to you that says we're only going to give you this cash if you do these five things we're going to come back next week and we want to actually, the way in which we're going to determine you've spent the cash correctly is because we can see X, Y and Z. We're not going to come back next week and just sit in the room and listen to what people are going on and going, wow, look at those people. That's amazing. Yes, well, that wasn't what I thought was going to happen, but that's still amazing. And yeah, that's a good use of my money. And off I go again. Yeah. Um, so that's what we mean by autonomy. Yeah. And it doesn't happen enough. And 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 for quite a lot, and, and and of course, the integral importance of understanding all of that is AA. So AA has remained the ultimate, well, almost the ultimate autonomous agency. There are some questions, of course, about some of the big donations that have happened in America, but we'll just put that aside. Yeah. <laughs> um, your average AA group works because people go in a room and then they hand over their one quid for the tea in the room higher, and then they come away again. And not because someone down the road has given them a hundred pound to meet and is asking them to fill in a set of forms and tell me who's turned up and how old they are and what age they are and everything else. So the autonomy—that's what we mean by autonomy. Coming together, that 
are passionate about the cause and want to do it. And doing it's all it themselves. And they're doing it for themselves, yeah. with themselves. I yeah. get it now. Yeah. No, yeah. Nobody has a say. You know, it's, it's us. Yeah. Like for, for in our case, it's yeah. us at Eternal. He yeah. says, yeah. which way Eternal steers. I mean, I have this yeah. lovely... I have this... Yeah. Yeah. It's I have this. You have as much say here yeah. as anyone. There's no outside organisation that can tell us what to do. And, yeah. and I think that's why it works. Because, you know, we work with people who have come out of real adversity because we have. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I have this brilliant expression, what I think is a brilliant expression. It's my own expression. Um, and the idea that um, commissioning recovery is an oxymoron. So an oxymoron is two words next to each other that contradict each other, can't exist next to each other. Yeah. So we take these two different words, commissioning and recovery, and it's the idea that government agencies can buy recovery no they can't no. <laughs> recovery is is what you is, is what people do yeah the most that people can buy is they can buy the supportive environment they can provide money for the space the yeah. equipment the facilities they can't buy recovery no yes you, yeah. it's, does that make sense it's, it's, a, also, so it's yeah. an oxymoron for me yeah yeah out there you'll see all sorts of guides to commissioning recovery well, no. <laughs> you probably can't do that. Yes. No. Yes. So. Hey. Yes. Wolf. <laughs> right. So you've been a chef. Yep. Okay. Um, social worker. Yep. And probation officer. I was, uh, well, not probation officer, strictly speaking, although I did join the probation service and I had the qualification to be a probation officer. Right. But I joined the probation officer from... Uh, you probably, I don't know if you know this or not, I joined them from KAIS. Did you know I worked for KAIS for a while? No, um, did I? When was that? So um, I joined the probation service so in those, 2000. I don't know, KAIS, um, now at Ferryad, but they, now they, at Ferryad. They, are, they, they were quite small back then, right? They were yeah. drug and alcohol. Uh, actually, alcohol initially. Right. So KAIS is a Welsh word, which uh, translates, broadly speaking, as information. Right. But it's also an acronym. And the acronym stood for Kungo, which is Welsh for counselling. Counselling as in the form that you were talking about it earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, when we're doing talking therapy for people. Yeah. And not the term I was talking about, which was the local counsellors in government. Yeah. So, yeah. so counselling is that, that odd word that has. So it stands for Kungo Alcohol Information Services. So KAIS was originally only alcohol. It was oh, part okay. of the way you have to go all the way back to the, the journey from uh, the 1980s when most of the agencies that were helping people outside of the nurses were just what we would have called voluntary alcohol counselling services. And that's where I joined before I even became a social worker. So my my first step into any of this world was to be a volunteer alcohol counsellor. That was the very first thing I did. And um, and part of that process, as I was saying to you earlier, Caitlin, was that actually um, that particular supervisor of me as a counsellor said I don't really think you should be a counsellor because you're far too political and you (laughs) want to be an advocate and you want to change the system and you want to fight the world and I think probably you're going to find counselling really frustrating because you're just going to ask people to reflect on how they feel and then they're going to go away and do their own stuff and you want to be marching with them and if you want to be marching with them you better go and be a social worker. How old were you then? um, I will have been so 
we're talking 32 years ago. Right. I'm 58 now, so late 20s when I began that journey. I kind of started stepping out of the kitchens and just recognised I wanted to change in my late 20s. I actually applied to be a nurse first and I got rejected from nursing. I applied to be a general nurse. I, you know, I'm trying to, I applied to be a bum-wiping nurse and they rejected me completely. They said I could be a mental health nurse, but that's not what I went to be there at that point in time. And I thought if you stick your hand up a chicken's ass like you do as a chef, then wiping <laughs> people's bums wouldn't be a particular problem. But the feedback from the nurses, the feedback from the nurses was just brilliant. They just said to me, well, we can't have your type on the wards. Is this when you're a rocker still? No, well, yeah, I had long hair and all the rest of it, but... Um, <laughs> And, 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 and I love the different approaches of agencies. And, and, and went, um, I went to them, well, why, why can't you have my, what do you mean my type on the ward? We don't want people like you challenging the doctors. That was the view of nurses 35 <coughs> years ago. You, you couldn't be a political radicalist that wanted to challenge the doctors. And they said to me, why don't you go away and be a social worker? And I ignored all of that and then went and joined Kais, yeah. like, you know, um, um, but, you know, thankfully the person who interviewed me on that day was really open-minded because I arrived with my baby and changed the nappy in the interview. <laughs> um, but they were cool with that, so that was okay. <laughs> like, you know, and took me on. And I did social work interview, and the social workers thought, I thought I'd failed the interview, but clearly I hadn't. And the nurses knew what they were talking about, and the counsellor knew what they were talking about because I went into the social work interview, and apparently that was all fine. I was apparently social work material, so... So then you did that for a while. And so I did that for a while. So my first job, and this is why I learned so much about drug and alcohol. So I tried to get a job, a normal job, inverted commas. I know we said there's no such thing as normality, but I tried to get a normal job in North Wales as a social worker. Failed miserably. I failed seven interviews, six interviews. And um, I was still living in Bangor, and there was a job advertised by Lifeline. Do you remember Lifeline? I think vaguely, yeah. So Manchester-based drug agency yeah. led by Ian Wardle. Yes, very street-based. At that point in time, they were doing... Um, all the cartoon leaflets they used yeah, to get. Yeah, I do in, remember those. Yeah, yeah all those. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Michael Linnell was doing those. Yeah, you know, a McDermott's Guide to Brown and stuff yeah, like that. Do you know the ones yeah. I mean? And, and anyway, so I went for this interview with Ian Wardle, um, and he was absolutely fine with it. He just said, "Oh yeah, you can come and be. You can come and work for us as a young person's drug worker. Absolutely fine. Yeah, no problem whatsoever. Like you know." Because, you know, um, I, I present it as I present now, you know. Uh, you know, I don't wear a suit or a tie for anyone. Um, um, you know, I'm not even my own wedding, so I'm not going to wear it for anyone else. Um, and he was fine with it, and he gave me my first job, and so I did old-fashioned drug work, which people don't do now. So my first job as a drug worker was just wandering around the streets of Runcorn and Widnes and... And Warrington, you know, sometimes we'd have the odd appointment and I'd go to people's houses, but quite a lot of it was just go and find your caseload. If they're on the street, go and talk to them, see what they want. Like Go to people's flats, and if you went to see Joey and Fred and George were there, well, that was your appointment for Fred and George at the same time. Like, you know, so I did all that, did some work in the, in, in the prisons, because um, that's what Lifeline also did. Um, and I won't get into that other story, but I had a really complicated story when... Um, I hit a lad with my car and I was and clearly the 75 miles driving to and from work every day were, and having two young children, I was physically exhausted after two and a half years. And I got a job with Kais, just a, 
a kind of old-fashioned, boring policy job um, for the first kind of few months, but didn't last very long in that. And then I became manager of there in, I would say, 1995. I became manager of all of their community services. Or 2000, I can't remember, to get my maths right. Probably 2000, actually, by the time I became manager of their services. And then five years after that, I then joined probation um, as area manager for all of their drug and alcohol services. So again, I was very fortunate. Steve Ray took one look at me and said, yeah, you're fine. No yeah, problem with Steve. Work, you know, yeah. So, yeah. Um, Steve Ray's this amazing guy. That yeah, he's very kind. Yeah. Again, what you would call a friend of recovery, a supporter who was prepared, even though he got a mainstream job, was prepared to really, it's a naff kind of expression, but he thought outside of the box. Yeah. He believed in people's ability to change. He believed in communities. Yeah. And, of course, left probation and still does just does community work in real, you know, and stayed true to some of that. Um, so, yeah, that's he, that journey, yes. Yeah, he was such a smooth operator, you know? wasn't he, Steve Ray? Yeah. Steve Ray was a man who believed in suits. Yeah, he did believe yeah, in suits. Yeah, yeah. He was a, very, he, very yeah, well. Him and I were the antithesis in yeah. terms of sartorial, which is the posh word for clothes, sartorial <laughs> elegance. Yes. He was impeccable, <laughs> yes. wasn't he? he was, yeah, yeah, yeah. His shoes shined. Yeah. I probably didn't have shoes, but his shoes shined like, you know. Yeah, he reminded like you know. an Italian gangster. He was so yeah, sharp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, a football yeah. manager. Um, yeah. So you've kind so of so that's that journey. I know it's, it's interesting because you've seen you've seen um, addiction recovery from every side you can think of, really. So you've got the judicial system there. You've got um, you've got the various drug agencies. I've been uh, the statutory social yeah, work you, perspective. You know, you've counsellor. You've caned quite a few yourself over the years, mostly up up a bloody mountain. <laughs> Yeah, spandex. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are a man of spandex up mountains. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I've got trousers on today. It's a rare, a yeah, rare event. Yes. Yeah, nice. Marcus <laughs> is not used to seeing me in trousers. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just normally seeing you in spandex, a little dot in the distance. Tights. I normally wear tights. Nice. <laughs> man in tights. Uh, but the, you I don't know. You've got quite a new, unique position on it because you, you're on, there's not enough fences that you've been on on the side. No, and of course now I'm on. paid to research and write about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like blown away a bit. Like, it's just mad. Like, everything that you've done and what you're doing now, and you're a friend of recovery. Like, I'm just shocked that someone that's, excuse the terminology, but someone that's not or doesn't identify as an addict or an alcoholic mm. has done so much and dedicated so much of their life to. to drugs and alcohol and helping people like I, I mean the reason I wouldn't identify myself in recovery we've probably talked about why I wouldn't identify myself as an addict even if I was in recovery but maybe I'd think differently anyway but is is I don't want to be disrespectful or dismissive to the far more difficult experiences you two have had yes my life has been a smooth cushy ride compared to yours yes and I think I'm, I'm being honest in saying that I'm not saying my life's not been difficult like other people's lives but you know, compared to when it's gone completely peaked on, when it's gone wrong for people and it's gone wrong badly, mine hasn't. And I've said to you, it's like, so I, that's why I'm keen that it's not appropriate to say that, yes? Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't give up using illegal drugs because it was making a mess of my life. It became a, a different choice, yes? Yeah. I, you know, I, I gave up smoking cigarettes because one day I was doing this fell race and the first mile and a half it was uphill and I got about a mile uphill and I'm throwing up blood at the side of the 
thing. I'd had about five pints, six pints the night before and smoked 40 fags or something. And I was doing this race the next day and I threw up blood and I got across the finishing line and decided something had to go. And you've mm. heard from me already today, let alone in another space, Caitlin, that probably nothing, you know, maybe I am addicted then because nothing's going to make me probably stop drinking alcohol in one form or another because yeah. it's my drug of choice. I just make sure it doesn't mess up my life. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, but, but nothing's a problem till it's a problem. Yeah. 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 So, so, but, um, so yeah, so that was my choice. So I'm just really conscious that it's not, I, I, it doesn't feel right for me to, to say any of those things, but I'm also really clear and I, I, I can be clear to you and I'm also clear to my colleagues. Yeah. yeah. In all of the work I've ever done, I, I don't go out and socialize with work colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my time off, I'm going to go and play cards tonight. Well, I'm going to go and play cards tonight with three of my mates who I've known since we were 18 or 19 and used to smoke loads of drugs together. And yeah. two of them still do and two of us don't. And I'm not changing that. That's I, I, I like drink and drug users as people. Yeah. They're the people I want to spend my life with. Yeah. Yes, but I clearly don't want to spend a life with them in a way in which it would end up me in jail in the way that you don't want to spend time with them they will end up with you in jail. Yeah. But it doesn't change the type of person that you that you want to be with and the people that you like. And yeah, and who are your community? It's still my community. It's always been my community. Does that, does that, does that make no, sense? No, it does, because, like, like, I like doing stuff with me dad, and me dad's not, like... He doesn't drink all the time or anything, but, like, say, if we go to London or something, like, he'll have, like, a whiskey or whatever. But, like, he doesn't do that around me and he's very conscious around me and he's very protective over that. And I just want him to treat me, like, normal. Yeah. There's that word again, but, like, and I want to be around people that so we, do that. I love that. So we had that, you know, you came to the public lecture last week. Yeah. So we had the, so this is the bit about being comfortable with it and the people who are uncomfortable with it. So we had the public lecture and um, one of the people organising the public lecture at Glyndur said, is it all right for us to have wine at this event? We've invited people about, um, from the recovery community to come and listen to it. And I goes, we just branded this event alcohol, alcohol policy. Yes. <laughs> The mere fact that there's a couple of bottle of wines, if they're a bit nervous about having people talking about alcohol for two hours, they're, they're, not, they're not coming. And I said to them, but if we label this a recovery event, it's teetotal. That's the difference. So, yeah. yeah, so there's a recovery space and that's very respectful. But we then don't expect everyone in recovery, we don't expect everyone in recovery or people in recovery don't expect the whole of society to be completely abstinence as you say that's that's bonkers consideration yeah you know that would be the same kind of process as everyone that was vegan expecting everywhere they went well some of them do but but, to, <laughs> yeah. but you know but to expect everything to be vegan yeah yes you, you can't go around doing that society is full of lots of different people doing different things and you've got to take your own responsibility for navigating those spaces yeah do you know what i wasn't going to bring this up but i'm gonna god nearly kicked a chair <laughs> so i said to marcus because i was telling him about your lecture and i was like marcus my head's fell off a bit here because like me i clocked the glass you had in your hand as soon as, you know, you started your talk. And, like, I was like, as you know, you could see me. I was taking notes, but then I was wanted to listen because it was interesting as well. I was yeah. really interested in it. 
But the so whole time, I had a glass of wine in my hand. The whole yes. time I was looking at the wine on the side, but then I was like looking at you and I was like listening to what you were saying and trying to make notes. And then at the end, when you took a sip of the wine, I was thinking, what's going on? And then I thought, who the hell? Like, I was thinking, does he not know who I think I am? Do you know what I mean? Like, and I was like a bit conflicted in my head because I was saying to you, you were like saying to me, he's not, he doesn't say he's in recovery. Like, what do you expect? Like, people to it's like I was, I was making the same point as yourself it was like, people yeah. are like oh Caitlin's an alcoholic Caitlin doesn't drink oh don't have this around here like I think I'm a bit conflicted with what so if you were coming to my house for dinner if you were coming to my house for dinner Caitlin you'd be more than welcome I would ask you whether or not you were comfortable knowing if I knew you were in recovery I'd ask you whether or not you were comfortable Yes. Yeah. So some of the people I know in recovery are really comfortable with that. So they'd come to my house at dinner and there would be other people that would be drinking or not. If I thought they were really uncomfortable, then we would just have an alcohol-free dinner. Yeah. Yes, I can get that. It's exactly the same as my one of my, son, my son's current girlfriend who is vegetarian. And I've been vegetarian. I've been vegan in my own life, but I'm not at the moment. And, you know, you have to ask her, well... You know, what are you comfortable, you know, in and around that? And she goes, what? I don't care. I don't expect you to not. So yeah. she'll come around and I think probably nine out of ten times she comes around, everyone in our table eats vegetarian. Sometimes she comes around and there are ten or twelve people or ten people for dinner. I think there's enough space and there's enough food on the table there to cook both meat and vegetarian food. And I'll do both, and she's comfortable with it. But I've asked her first. Yeah. I wouldn't, and it's that same thing, yes? But in that particular environment, when it was yeah. a public environment named alcohol... No, I know. You're responsible, not me. Didn't I say that to you, Marcus? I said to Marcus, that's my shit, yeah, not yeah. Wolf's. That's, yeah, yeah. that's on me, and I get that, but I was conflicted, and I don't really get out that much. And <laughs> okay. It's like, it's like <laughs> a, a One of the problems of recovery, form. of course, yes. <laughs> yeah, so now I'm just like... Oh my god, I'm just not that important. Like I am the main character in my story. I'm not the main character in your story or in your story, Marcus. Yeah. So like I'm yeah. glad I got that off my chest, really. No, no. I feel a lot different. Yeah. Like Because I, I, I had the things. sense you felt betrayed. Like because yeah. the look on the face to me, I'm quite good at reading people, it's part of my job, right? <laughs> and it's like that's the look of a woman betrayed. <laughs> How do you feel betrayed by by Wolf because he had a glass of wine? You know he has got a problem with alcohol, yeah. so what? So we you know, we we did have a chat about it, yeah. but it's and I guess and, and, I, and maybe the expectation was that you don't drink because you do so much with people in recovery. And I think now, I have a I kind of. I yeah. would like to get to that. I, I think I have a little bit of honesty. I feel, I feel the honesty requires me to be honest to you, Caitlin. I, yeah. I think the opposite would be me being dishonest. I'd be false. I'd be not being a true human being. And all the part about what being in recovery is about loving ourselves and being true to ourselves and being honest with each other. Yeah. Well, I have to be honest in that space. So I walk up mountains and I do lots of recovery walking, as Marcus knows. And we did that 100 my, my walk, health, you know, I did seven or eight days walking <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. I spent all seven days with people and, you know, that was a completely absent week. That's absolutely fine. Yes. Well, I just recently did a 65th birthday with one of the people I have consumed more drugs with than anyone in my life. It was his 65th birthday. We didn't take any drugs up the mountain, but we did sit on top of the mountain and have some whiskey. 
and he bought a bottle of champagne for his 65th birthday. Well, we shared that amongst eight of us. Yeah. We had a small glass of champagne each on the mountain and a swig of whiskey. We weren't fucking pissed. It wasn't dangerous or anything else. <laughs> yeah. So we come back down here. And, and I suppose I'm just saying that both need to go in those spaces. Yeah. But it's really important for me to be honest about it. Otherwise, if I'm not honest about that with the recovery community, what else do I suddenly not become honest about? Don't tell them that I earn lots of money. Don't tell them I live in a nice house compared to the, to the poor bedsits people are living in. That's just dishonest stuff. Yeah. Be comfortable. If I'm uncomfortable with where I live and what I earn, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I shouldn't be lying or hiding that, you know, or what I choose to drink. What I, do you no, know what I, I mean? Totally, I, yeah, I totally respect and I, that. And I think sometimes some people step into a room, whether it's drug and alcohol recovery or, or mental health or social work, they, they come in and try to present a non-real human being. This yeah. is their professional person. We've got this idea that we have to have a professional boundaries and all that stuff. God, it, it, it's bonkers. You know, and uh, and some people go way beyond that, which is the bit I like, but most other people, and sometimes, dare I say, it's slightly more up your own arse or the slippery slope you go. Sometimes the more difficult this stuff is for you. Um we all share the same toilet. We all shit the same way. We're human beings, yeah. you know. Let's. So I think we just have to be really comfortable about that stuff in a space. Some people are not, and you're right. In the end, I feel I just have to be really honest. Now, and I, do you know what? I really respect you for that, and you know, I like that. I want you to think that what you see or don't, or you get in contact with, is is me. Yeah. And that not someone, me, an actor that's yeah. arrived at a place for no, you. No, I think as well, when you first arrived here today and when we had like, like a quick chat outside I, and I said to you that I felt nervous and I was like, oh, you you know, a professor and, and all and you were like, I'm a fucking human being. Just ask me whatever, like just talk to me. Yeah. And I feel like I can do that now and I feel like, by going to see your lecture and hearing you talking, like, the whole wine situation, that made me, like, like learn something about myself. Because mm -hmm. I went home with that, and it was it was my shit, not yours, obviously. But I really had to, like, do a bit of, like, personal inventory on that. I was like, why mm. did I feel like that? Was I resentful because I can't have a bevy now, or...? What was it? Like, why did I feel like that? Do I feel like everyone needs to tiptoe around me? Do you know what? I think some people are resentful that because it was mad. they can't have a drink and there's yeah. other people drinking. And I think that, yeah, there does like a bit of yeah. this. I think this is a really healthy conversation that and that you've actually... I get those periodic... Yeah. Coming back to my early conversation, I get those periodic moments when I'm resentful of the odd person that has a fag. <laughs> um, I and I even occasionally want to ask people for a fag yeah to know. is it jealousy is there like even for a moment is there a little thing of jealousy <laughs> there's, there's something going I, I, I don't analyse maybe I because because I don't need to or work it out like so I don't need to take an inventory about it but I do have those feelings yeah. nonetheless um, and I'm also clear that I, I use the expression very clearly about myself that I currently don't smoke and I currently don't use drugs and I'm not closing that door. I said this to somebody the other day, I'm just not closing that door. When I'm retired, when I think my 
physical life is on a downward slope and there's no amount of looking after my body is going to have a significant difference on on the future i'm not discounting the fact that i may choose to just yes. want to you know euphemistically sit on the veranda in a rocking chair and have a smoke or you know i'm certainly not dismissing the fact that when my body's given up i'm in an acute pain that i might not want some heroin to just ease those last parts of my life through um you know, so I yeah. There's all of that kind of goes on in my head as well, yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, so, <laughs> you know. it's like me. I can't say I'll never drink again. I mean, currently at this moment, this point, in time, I don't want to drink, yeah. and I don't want to drink because of the devastating effects it has on my life. Yeah. But that's not to say that I won't drink in the future. I don't want to, and I just take it yeah. day by day, even if it's like minute by minute or hour by hour if I have to yeah. like I don't want to but I'm not saying that yeah. I mean I, I've had this happen to me in a whole different way recently I've become diabetic six months ago yeah. and I've had to reappraise my relationship with orange juice biscuits crisps bread <laughs> potato Eccles cakes God I love Eccles cakes you know yeah. so I'm having to reappraise my relationship with these things you know because Actually, if I don't, I will die. Yeah. Potentially. Wow. I could still choose to. Yeah. But for the moment, I'm choosing actually, no, uh, maybe I will just take the diabetic test every day and just see what's going on. And I might take some of them drugs and actually, do you know what? Actually, I don't really miss those biscuits too much, but I'm still going to have an Eccles cake from time to time at the moment. Like, you know. And God, if I'm out and coming back to our earlier conversation as well, if I'm in a restaurant and it's sticky toffee pudding on the menu, I can't leave without having <laughs> the sticky toffee pudding, you know. Hey yeah. ho, just make sure I don't have it every day. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, but I think we all do these reappraisal stuff all the time, so I think it's really important. Yeah. You know. You know, you're a friend of recovery. Yeah. You know, people that you work with. Do people have a problem with you not being in recovery yourself? Do, are people resistant towards you? Have you ever experienced people be a bit hostile? Um, more so, I think, when I was a professional worker all the time, occasionally, I think that would happen. Um, you know, and that's a common expression, but it gets asked in other settings. Yeah. So believe it or not, children, family, social workers will often get asked, have you got kids? And if there happen to be a childless social worker, then families go, well, how on earth can you know what it's like? So it it can be that same conversation can can happen elsewhere. Um, I've only ever chosen to be honest. In my experience, I find that most people work through that respectful stuff. And it's not always about who you are or even what you say with people. And when I work for probation, you have to give people really bad news. It's actually how you are with people. It's the way you are with people. Yeah. In the end, these things are far more important. Um, you know, um, I, I, you know, um, when people think of good or bad workers or good or bad drug workers, we tend to think of the ones, the way they were with us. It probably wasn't actually what they did to some extent, although there are some bits of 
doing that are not good, like never turning up on time for an appointment if you're the professional. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know you're, the druggies will get signed off the books or the probation officer will, you know, <laughs> give you a bad tick in the book if you're late. But, you know, but they can be like, you know. So, um, so yeah, I have had some of that stuff. Um, but I don't think now I think it's different because you said when I'm working with people, because I don't work with people professionally in quite the same way. No. You know, most of my time in the recovery immunity is me giving my personal time. Yeah. Yes. You know, my time with you here today is my time. It's not my work time. Yeah, you chose to come here. Oh, yeah, but and or I will have to go home and work this evening for four or five hours to compensate for it. You know, the emails that are in my diary today still have to be answered today. But I create that time to give to people. You know, coming back to our worker and their desire, you know. So I make that time. So... I'm not necessarily, I don't think it's such an issue anymore because I'm not working with people in the same way. As a friend of recovery, I'm just being with people. Yeah, that's and it. I, and I think that's probably slightly different. Um, that's not to say that I don't, in my work with Penryn, I do do some clinical supervision for some people. So that's clearly working with at that moment. And that's my professional skills being offered. But that's the staff, albeit that they're in recovery rather than me. Um you know, so, yeah, it's not quite the same, but I have experienced that bit. But I think most people are all right with it. They just want to know who you are and what sort of person. It's more about, use the word respect. I think people just want to know if they can respect and trust the person they're yeah. working with. And sometimes if someone gets really arsy with me, I've challenged them, yes, and I'm going to them, do you know what? When I go to the doctor, and I have been a client of mental health services in the past, but when I go to the doctor say as a mental health patient I'm not really interested in how many times the doctor's been in the psychiatric unit and actually most people would be pretty uncomfortable <laughs> going to the doctor yeah. you know um, if they thought their doctor was in and out of the psychiatric unit I suspect it's not a question people ask yeah. Yeah, so yet we ask it of drink and drug yeah. users and I certainly for example when I had my vasectomy I didn't go into the doctor and said have you had your balls chopped before deciding <laughs> you know whether or not yeah. I, at that moment in time I want the surgeon to be an expert so yeah top of his game so I can really challenge that question sometimes when people want it and that for me is about the professional space and a lot of our conversation is saying that the professionals have a professional role and that's very different yeah. about people being in recovery where the whole point about identifying with other people who have been on that journey is an essential part of the way in which recovery and recovery community works. So I can only be in that space as a minority. If the recovery space was full of more friends of recovery than it was people in recovery, it wouldn't work. But if it's lots of people in recovery and it's a small number of friends joining that journey, then that's okay. Yeah. We're kind of diluted. We're not spoiling the soup, as it were, because the soup is is all the people in recovery. Yes. You know, if we over dilute it, it doesn't work. It ceases to work then. Yeah. And that, you know, we we definitely appreciate your time today. And it was a no brainer for us to ask you down here. We've known you for years and. Um, you've always been very closely allied with people in recovery and a part of us. Yeah. And um, and I, I guess I've never really thought... You know, it could be, it could, it's not typical that somebody who isn't, you know, that isn't doing it as their day job 
is with us and helping us and giving us a voice when you know a lot of us don't have the voice mm. you have and putting you know the credibility or the mm. you know just speaking to areas of the world that we'd, we'd never you know they'd never let us in they'd never open that door to us so you know that you, you have access and you're you're giving us that a voice and you know banging our drum and waving our flag in places we never could and reaching those areas we we could never so thank you for that from you know hopefully everyone would agree to, from all of us um, but I, and i feel the need to do that a little bit more now yeah what i'd ask is um why why are you a friend of recovery? Because it's it's not typical that somebody is. If it's not I'm not saying there aren't many of yeah. of you know kind of recoverous people that yeah. what help, but 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 so why? Because you've been around forever helping and you know and doing yeah. things on your own time, like taking us up mountains at weekends. Right, yeah, I mean, as we said before, I you know I've been in this journey since almost right from the beginning that we would recognise it beyond some of that very discreet AANA space in a way, yes. I remember sitting with um, a particular lad who's not with us at the moment, but doing the first ever um, kind of service user involvement meeting ever in Wrexham, and that was just me and this lad in a room for a few weeks till other people joined in and stuff. And I, I can still remember that in a vow all those years ago. Um, the answer to your question, I think I've already told you in a funny sort of way, but I can spill it out a little bit more clearly. And it's connected to, to do probably with why I ended up being a social worker and not a nurse or a counsellor. Because the bit that burns inside me at some level, and I gave it to you as well in the answer to the what would happen if I was in charge of policy question. I, I'm absolutely consumed with some of the social justice agenda yeah and I suppose and I even stepped into that space at probation um, with Steve Ray's support and it was the most difficult space I've ever stepped into so way beyond recovery most difficult space I ever set in, stepped into was trying to establish um, what was referred to as a sex offender service user group and their right to meet and have peer support which, of course, probation just wouldn't allow, you know, the idea that, you know. So, But more specifically, coming back to the answer to your question, is, is is that beyond that group, then drug and alcohol users are amongst some of the most marginalised and stigmatised people in the community. So I'm just passionate in wanting to challenge that view. And then partly because I don't see myself as different. I've been a drug user. I am a drug user today. Alcohol is a drug. I'm taking shed loads of big farmers' drugs to keep me alive in terms of diabetes. I'll, you know, so I'm, I, I don't see those boundaries in the same way. And But I think, and then I said to you, and I wanted to say when I was just interrupting you there, Marcus, that actually I feel the need to do it even more at some level than I've ever done before, because now I've got some, a mixture at some level occasionally of a bit of power and authority, Yes comes with being a professor you yeah. know people you know yes but <laughs> nice. also comes with being given a voice at a table that isn't given to other people and I, I feel a need to use that I've got certain skills I was sharing some of those with you before this call even come up I want to make sure that people get the benefit of those things to improve that situation so it's all of that sort of stuff um is some of the answers to the question but I've also given you the answer because it's just a space where I just feel comfortable. 
I get it. I, yeah. I, I surround myself by fun, happy, positively charged people who are a little bit naughty. Just, a little bit wacky, a little bit a little bit, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, a bit of an edge. And, and of course, maybe part of it's the bit I miss. Yeah. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe in some ways it's the closest way I can get to some of the bit that I've given up. Yes? Okay. Yeah? You know, acid fuel trips, wandering around space, doing the wacky, crazy stuff. Yes? You know, I'm not going to get that on a night out with four social workers necessarily, <laughs> yeah? Or a couple of university lecturers, yes? No. Yeah. You know, um, so... I love that you feel at home. Maybe yeah. it, 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 that, that doesn't go away, you know. And the last bit of it, I suppose, is going all the way back to when I was, you know, 14, 13. A little bit of me has always been anti-establishment. And I know it that. I, show I, 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 <laughs> and I know I'm part of the establishment. So well. <laughs> I know I'm part of the establishment, you know, and maybe more so never than today as a, <laughs> as a professor, inverted commas. But because um, I've still got imposter syndrome on that one, Marcus. Yes, yeah. I haven't yet owned it. <laughs> yes, I might do one day. Um, but yeah, so maybe that's also part of that bit. Yeah. I'm not comfortable amongst the suits, is a simple way of putting it. Never have been. You can do it when you have to, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, of course. Yeah. I even put a tie on once. Yeah. I remember, um, chief I remember the chief executive at Kais saying to me, um, I really need you to put a tie on today. <laughs> Why? If you put a tie on today, it might be the thing that makes the difference between us or us not getting half a million pounds from the Welsh government to invest in the drug and alcohol community. Yeah, I can prostitute myself that much for one day, yes. <laughs> and we got the half million pounds and wow. we opened the Dawn Centre. As you know, we opened the Dawn Centre with that money and all the things that we did. So, yeah, OK, it's probably, on the whole, worth that act of prostitution. Yes. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, so I can do it if we need to. Yeah. OK, so what are you involved with right now? So you, you're heavily involved with North Wales Recovery Community, our very good friends down in Bangor? Yeah, so that's the that's the one place that I've stayed in terms of an active, whatever you want to call it, mixture of my professional skills, social work, but also the recovery community I spend most time with. Mm -hmm. um, um, and that's a mixture of things. It's a bit of support for specific staff who need it. Some direct support to the management and directors and trustees on a number of issues safeguarding planning evidence-based documents i got involved and have been involved in quite a long time for them which has been necessary with different parts of their safeguarding journey and risk assessment stuff and of course that's a bit about using my power in a sense if they hand back to probation officer or something and go well actually this recovering addict's made this risk assessment but actually, if they go back and go, this Dr. Livingston qualified social worker's made this risk assessment. Well, yeah, yeah, if they want to use it, yeah. they want to use it. So, so yeah, so I've, so I've been doing that stuff with Penryn. And then I suppose my day job is still with the university here at Glyndura. Um, I love that job. That job's changed. I entered it mostly doing social work education. I'm now mostly doing drug and alcohol research. And I'm involved in a myriad of research projects. Um, 
lots to do, as you saw me the other day, Caitlin, lots to do with alcohol policy yeah. and, and particularly the minimum pricing policy. But I'm doing um, a project in England looking at the use of detoxification beds, doing a project in Scotland looking at um, protocols for alcohol liver disease, doing um, project in Scotland looking at technology-enabled care with the homeless, just finished a big review of the prison service in Scotland and their support for drug and alcohol users there, doing some work down in Swansea, uh, establishing a, a commission that's looking at um, investigating why Swansea has the highest drug deaths in, in Wales. So lots and lots of research, all alcohol and drug-related, um, and then lots of writing uh, for books and journals and stuff like that. So um, Tell us about your book. Hmm? Tell us about your book. Yeah, so the book's an interesting little journey to get on. So What's the I, book about? Yeah, so I, two years ago, three years ago, it was becoming clear I was going to have less and less to do with social work education, yes? Um, and um, I'd been in these meetings with lots and lots of people, and of course in Wales, in 2014, the Welsh Government passed its first piece of legislation, and it very deliberately chose its first piece of legislation, was the Social Services and Wellbeing Act. And it followed it immediately with the Future Generation Act. And and they came into force in 2016. And, and sort of four or five years in, it becomes increasingly clear that social care in the broadest sense and social work more narrowly in Wales becomes different from that in England every year. And so we were talking about the fact that actually every time a, a social work student in Wales picks up a textbook, in England it applies less and less to them. And I knew I was beginning to become more and more alcohol and drug related research and less and less time doing the social work stuff and I kind of thought I really need to just sort this business out of trying to sort the first social work in Wales book you know for, for those people and I thought okay this was Christmas before last I thought okay I'm just going to go and ask these two people and if they say no that's it I'll walk away from it. Someone else will pick it up because it's not going away this issue and I went to these two people two colleagues of mine in South Wales and they both said yes and um, we said, OK, let's think about the seven people we might like to most invite to contribute to this book. And if they don't say yes, we can't find any authors, then we'll just put it to bed. And all those seven people said yes. And we've gone on to ask. And we've got about 45 people contributing 23 chapters at the moment. So we've asked about 45 people and they've all said yes. So we've now had most of the chapters in. So sometime this year, it's going to go off to the publishers. And sometime next year, hopefully next June, July, August, there will be this book in print, which will be the first book on social work in Wales. Um, and it's got a single chapter on it on recovery as well, which really excites me. Not one on mainstream <laughs> drug and alcohol services, but recovery. And messages for the social workers about the recovery journey. And that is being written with three of my long-term friends from the recovery community. So a lad, Tim, um, who ironically works in SMS, but was actually a, a very lead player in the Chester Recovery Group and all those Chester Recovery marches. Do you remember the Chester marches? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Tim's so, a mate of mine too. So, 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 so Tim's one of the authors. The, the, the second author in it is um, a friend of ours called James Deakin. I know James. Um, from Penryn House. I know. You yeah. know James? I was actually going to go to Penryn House um if I didn't have my dad helping me financially to like get a place, I was actually on a waiting list. We'd have gone go. there from open minds with yeah, you. Yeah, and I think James Deacon was the guy that he called me back to tell me that they had a spot for me. Okay. And I was like, you know what? I would have loved to have gone, but 
my dad helped me out. So there's life give, journeys, Caitlin. We would have yeah, met ten months ago. <laughs> I just thought give the give the position to someone that actually needs <laughs> yeah, it yeah. because yeah. And oh. then and then the third person on the book is our lovely friend from South Wales, Sarah Vale. Oh yeah, so I can't know them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's got a I've really Sarah, Sarah chicken dinner. <laughs> oh, nice. So as you can imagine, three people representing some of the Wales recovery community. I, I couldn't choose about three people to to help write a, a book chapter with it within that book. So yeah, that, that's brilliant, and um, yeah. and that kind of brings up for me the, the kind of the community in Wales, the recovery community. We all kind of very well linked. I feel yeah. We all kind of know each other. I'm not saying that doesn't happen in in mm. in, in, in England or, or Scotland. It's just you know I'm, I'm part of it in yeah. Wales. Um, I was with Tim last week at the at the hub in Warrington. We were oh, the mic. He was showing me round of what he's doing now, and we're gonna we're gonna do stuff together. You know, Eternal in the hub in Warrington are gonna do stuff together. But um, the the three people that he just mentioned, they are, I can't think of. They're, they're just brilliant, aren't they, for the for the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How will they be contributing? Different ways. Um, so um, Tim's is mostly about helping me tell the story of the recovery movement and how that fits in in Wales. And then Sarah and James are each writing a little bit of the story about not telling the story of Recovery Cymru and North Wales Recovery Community, but more telling how and why it works and why it's different to treatment such as social workers can hear those messages. So what makes it different? How does it work? Some of the things that we've been talking about on and off for, you know, through this conversation. Um, I mean, James is writing part of it. So it's an 18 certificate, is it? <laughs> <laughs> My job as the fourth person contributing it to is, is to um, polish it up for the, for the wider audience, as it were, like, you know. And another fucking thing. <laughs> um, so, um, and to be fair, no, James's, uh, James's was just more verbose than it was sweary. It was a bit long, yeah? It went on for a bit and, and needed, needs a bit of tidying up. Um, um, so, yeah, just it's just a really nice thing to do and, um, you know, and I welcome that. And th- th- this book is partly about us talking about... So, in its way, it was a difficult book to sell at one level because we sold it as wanting it to be different voices and we said it wouldn't be uniform um, and we'd allow it to have different styles and and each of the chapters is unlike a normal kind of texty type book which looks very similar. Each one of them is very different. We've got two or three chapters that are written exclusively by um, individuals with lived experience. They're the only people that write those chapters. Um, we've got a small number of students writing contributing chapters and we've got practitioners in practice contributing chapters and then we've got some of us who are you know academics contributing to the chapters as well so it's this nice mix of voices that have come together very cool um should be good um it's funny for me because I'm much more proud of the work that I generally do in the alcohol and drug world but I know that actually this is probably one of the things that I'm going to do along with my colleagues that will make a a big contribution will actually carry quite a long journey uh, you know so um, so kind of legacy yeah and it was my social work legacy maybe in a funny sort of way but not just mine because it's lots of other people's stories but for me yeah it's um part of that that process out um and maybe i can't have a drug and alcohol legacy because it is who or what i am and it's part of my community and i'll be taking that to my grave anyway so 
and I won't stop doing that in a different sort of way. You know, I guess my social work identity will slowly and has already begun to disappear as I hang up that professional social work cap. You know, at some point in time, I'm going to stop being registered as a social worker. You know, um, I don't know when that's going to happen, but they invite me every three years, but maybe one more registration, I don't know. Who knows? So. I mean, you've got so much going on. Mm. You know, I'd, I'd quite often ask, like, so what next? But I know, I you've got so much constant, like, you, you're into anyway. I, mean, what? I do have a what next. Okay, let's go to what's next. <laughs> um, so the contradiction in all of this is what next is for me just a life beyond work i'm 58 now and i can begin to see that on the horizon i guess like many people that might not necessarily mean not working but doing different work for people that isn't actually necessarily about always being the wage slave inverted commas but things that i might want to do mm-hmm. um i've done all the big the big mountain running i want to do but there's a lot more of that long distance walking I still want to do, Marcus. You know, I, yeah. I've got a bug for some of that. So I'd like to be able to have a few more weeks off in my life when I can just walk for seven consecutive days. You know, my life's too busy for me to do that at a moment. Um, um, and it probably isn't. That's just an excuse because if I really wanted it, I'd make the time like anyone else, I guess. But, you know, um, sort of some of all of that, I think. Yes. Um, you know, so, yeah, there are some what nexts on the horizon, I think. Yes. Yeah. You're doing the recovery walk? No, I won't do the recovery walk this year. I'll do a day or so. I won't do the whole thing, partly because... You've heard what I've just described. If I tell you the deadline for getting the book to the publishers is October the 3rd, I can't see myself finding a week in September where I can step away from the computer for the whole week. (laughs) (laughs) I just can't see that happening. Apart from anything else, I'm also due to produce the interim report to the Welsh Government in that month on minimum unit pricing as well. So I guess between a hundred thousand pound, hundred thousand word book and a you know a fifty hundred page report for Welsh government, I'm just looking pretty hard that September's a period when I can step away from the computer screen, probably. So yeah, but I will do something. Tony's asked me if I go up he, um, with the kaleidoscope up Snowdon one day, so I'll try and see if I can find a day to go up Snowdon with Tony. That'll be like reconnecting right back to where the journey began. Yeah, Tony. Oh, cool. You know. Um, which was an amazing experience you know that story was just mind-blowing you know he came to us and said i want to take these people and he didn't just want to take them on a mountain walk i want to walk them over 14 mountains in one go (laughs) was what he asked from us in 24 hours yeah in 24 hours (laughs) um and we did it at the third time of asking we had two times when um and i dare not use the word only but we managed to walk people for 19 hours and eight mountains um um, in in recovery and the third time of asking we did it it was 27 hours we couldn't do it in 24 it took more than 24 hours Um, and there were about eight of us that did that 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 walk on that occasion um yeah And again, coming back to what we're talking about, about people, about limiting the expectation or aspirations, yeah? 
Yeah, this is people in recovery. Yeah, of course they can do a walk that most people can't even get their head around. Partly because they can use the same determination and motivation and skills that fueled them, you know, to go on the cycle of acquisition of money and acquisition of gear. Well, they can turn <laughs> all those skills into something else and motivation yeah. energy if they want to. And all that energy can do something else. Do you know what? That makes me laugh because sometimes I can find myself moaning, no gratitude whatsoever. And I'm like, oh, I have to wait here. Like, say if I'm sitting outside waiting and it's cold, and then I go to myself, well, you weren't fucking complaining when you were waiting outside the shop in the cold for a bottle. Yeah, yeah. So, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> and then I laugh to myself and I think, yeah. <laughs> Apply that same determination yeah. and dedication yeah. for that, for something like, yeah. that's good, that I'm passionate about, that's helping me, not, like, destroying me. And... Um, and there's lots of all of those resources sit within the recovery community that are they're almost dismissed. Yeah. They're kind of, you know, not understood really, you know. You know, and I, Christ, the ones that have been dealers, well, you know, their potential to sell on behalf of recovery organisations <laughs> and talk the gab and persuade people to part with their cash, you know, to support yeah. the organisation. We'll just use those skills in a completely That's different it, way, yeah. like, you know. It's terrible. Hmm? All yeah. transferable, for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Keep yeah. it, keep them all and use them for a good cause. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Because yeah, I don't yeah. want to lose my identity completely. Like, I want to keep me, but just a better version of me, like a good version of me. And I think that's really important. You know, some of this conversation has been about my own journey. And for me, that's been really important. I, I said yeah. this earlier, I still want to be me. yeah. I don't want to be someone else. Yeah. That completely. You know, and I'm not the same me that people came across me. And sometimes I can't escape the old me. You know, I've, I was a chef in one place somewhere and I still meet some people who say to me, oh, I remember when you were chefing in so and such a place. And I'm thinking, my bloody life's moved on however many... But yeah. and then I'm, And then I pinch myself and go... Well, aren't I really lucky that 35 years on, people can still remember a meal I cooked for them? Yeah. Okay, that's mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah. So all those years ago when, yeah, yeah. when you were a chef starting out and you're social mm. again, and, you know, you kind of, um, you know, you're, you're amazing journey to where you are today. Is there anything, is there a kind of a sentence of, of words of wisdom that you'd give your that you'd wish you'd known then that you know now, like a little bit of advice to yourself or anything? Kind of yes and no. And I think probably quite a lot of people say this in recovery, that actually I am only who I am today because of all of the things I did then, including the mistakes. Um, yeah. So part of that is probably, well, actually, if I undid that, I'd be something else, you know. I mean, I had a moment before I ever came uh, to North Wales and, you know, my attraction to North Wales was essentially just cannabis and magic mushrooms, um, you know. Um, I had a moment when I might have gone to a different place and studied law and not studied medieval history and presumably I'd be a different person. So some of it's about not thinking about that too heavily because of who we are um but 
Yes. Um, I think the only thing I'd have probably said to myself was a little less moments of intoxication so I could remember some of it. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember everything. My memory's not good of all of that stuff. So I have a warmth and a glow. I'm not in contact with the detail. Maybe people don't need to be in contact with the detail anymore today because they've just got it all digitally recorded. But, you know, and that, so there is a little bit of that. I wish I could somehow hold on to and capture the moments rather than them fade. And maybe they fade because of old age. But I think I accelerated the phase through all the drink and drug haze. Yes. And, and, and part of me would wish that I hadn't faded it as much. True. Caitlin, you got anything else? Do you know for someone that's listening and that's inspired by you, what advice would you give them, like, say if they wanted to be, like, a social worker or, like, help with the drugs and alcohol community? How would someone get started? What, like, advice could you give to someone? Um, don't expect it to be easy. Expect there to be a lot of stigma and prejudice towards you. Be prepared to fight some of that stuff. Don't pick all the fights you can, because that's like pissing in the wind and you'll be the one that gets covered in urine and you can be brighter and cleverer than that. So choose the moments that you fight and struggle. Stick at it. Find the manager the agency and the space that takes you for who you are and then you'll be given the room to grow yes yeah i had that twice the one place i didn't have it was in that kais interview and the chief executive of kais said to me after the interview he said for the first 20 minutes interview i didn't listen to a word you said because you had the audacity to walk in this room without wearing a tie <laughs> yeah but at the end of the interview I still wanted to offer you the job and I knew that I couldn't ask you to wear a tie. So I, you've got to be true to yourself in that space yeah. and if they don't want you, you don't want them. Love that. Mm, yes. Brilliant. That is brilliant. Job interview is a two-way process. Yeah. And if they don't want you, you almost certainly don't want them. You've saved yourself trouble further down the line. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's yeah. amazing, yeah. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I honestly feel really inspired. Like, Well, thank you. But You're really interesting. But don't, you're the inspiring folk, not me, so. Thanks. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, and I just love it, you know. Is there anything you feel we should have asked you that we might have missed, something that you'd like to talk about, or um, anything else you want to say? No. Is there anything we you sure? No, because this is like... Um, this for me is like when I kind of have the conversation with professionals that you can't do an assessment. Yeah? If the three of us were to return next week and have this conversation, it would be a different conversation. It couldn't be the same conversation, even with the same questions. It would have some of the same elements, but it would be different. It is the conversation we've had today, so that's the conversation. <laughs> yeah? I, can't, I don't want to change that. That's just... That's what it was, and that's what it is, yes? You know... Um, so, no, I don't think you can do that, yes? Okay, well, I'm happy to say you've got the job, but you will have to wear a tie. 
<laughs> In which case, I don't want it. Did you well know, like? <laughs> no, just thank you. And just really, and, and Caitlin, just, yeah, you're great. Just relax with it, you know. Thank you. Yeah. The nerves disappear, yes. Someone, someone told me something about nerves. When I first started to speak on stage in front of lots and lots of people, and sometimes I speak in front of hundreds of people on stage, um, and remember that the only person that can feel or see the nerves inside your stomach is you. Bloody hell. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. So you're feeling it all the time. We're not. We don't see it. Yeah, or it's like when I have anxiety, I'm like wanting to kill myself. I want to die inside. Yeah. And I'm like... Well, I'm the only one that's doing this. Yeah, yeah. I can turn it off. Like, I've got a choice. But you don't have to turn it off because like, we're not seeing it. I know. It's like I torture myself with my own emotions and feelings. Yeah. It's mad, you know. Yeah. yeah, so we're not seeing it. I thought it was great when I suddenly realised that and thought, they're not seeing it at all. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed Yeah, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. It's good to come here for the first time. Yeah. It's overdue, and I apologize. Oh, yeah. And I apologize for that. Yeah, I sorry, I've only been here six years. Yeah, yeah. I do apologize for that profusely. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm glad you're here today. Yeah, thanks so much for coming up. Yeah, yeah. It's um, you, you met. Do you meet Luke? I did. Yeah, I've met, met Luke, Luke a few yeah, times. Yeah. Walked with Luke, haven't you? Last year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Luke. Luke's, Luke had. Um, had questions that we didn't get to, but um, go on. But no, you're gonna have to come back for Luke. Okay. Luke will do a very different interview. He's okay. much more academic. Yeah, and, I'm a uh, creative, charismatic girl. But yeah, Luke's put an incredible amount of work together researching and stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll get you in touch with Luke. Sorry, sorry, we didn't ask all your questions, Luke. Sorry, Luke. <laughs> we can do them for another day. We, we appreciate you so much coming in today. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's been honestly, a- love to have you back though. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, honestly, I feel like you. You've changed my life <laughs> today. I, I, I don't want to sound like it. Honestly, no. Like, I, my face went dead hot at one point. I was like, just like listening. But like, I literally, you've just made me like see myself in a different way. I hope positive. And now in a positive way. Okay, like, good. I feel a bit like emotional. <laughs> it's weird. Good. But yeah. Oh mm. my God, no, I can't cope. But yeah, it was good. Thank you. We should be human with each other. So you've been listening to... <laughs> Sorry, guys. Yeah, anyway, you can do the push bit now. Yeah. yeah, thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys, for joining us today on the Recovery Hub podcast. You've been listening to Wolf Doctor... Dr. Wolf. Wolf Livingston. It's just Wolf, isn't it? Yeah, it's just no, Wolf. you've been listening to our friend Wolf Livingston. Friend of eternal and recovery. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'll do the, the outro. Could you want to do it again? I'll probably do it, like, not now. Okay. I need to get my head together. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is so weird. You turned it a mush one. I don't know what's going on. I'm usually the one that makes people cry, not the other way around. If you've been affected by any of the topics in this episode, please reach out to a trusted contact or seek a professional for support. Hi everyone, it's me again. I had to take a bit of a breather in between recording this as I got quite emotional at the end of the conversation, as you could see. I'm all good now though. 
Wolf has given me a new outlook and perspective on my own life and sobriety. For someone who's not in recovery themselves, but understands and can relate to me on such a personal level, I've never experienced anything like that before and I don't really have any words to describe it. Next time we have something a little bit different for you. It's a collection of diary style recordings from our friends at Penryn House. Penryn House is a recovery community just on the outskirts of Bangor and the recordings are taken from residents. The recordings are extremely candid and give a great insight into what life can be like after addiction. See you next time.